that's the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. to find chaos and plenty of empty shells. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan, to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com. Or call 888-441. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon 
for my Patriot Foods. All right. And I guess that ended a little sooner than I expected. <laughs> Welcome to Southern Sense. Here you're <laughs> listening live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News of an iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie, who's on a roll today, along with my debonair and right. erudite co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. How are you today? I'm doing fine. I'm still getting over another gap by Uncle Joe. I guess you heard about it. Um, I think he said um, there are poor poor kids who are just as smart as white kids. So <laughs> does he not know that poor encompasses all races? <laughs> that guy, he never stops giving. <laughs> no, it's... It- it's the white privilege that I experienced that you haven't. The white privilege. I was born with a silver yeah, spoon, more like a, a plastic takeout spoon in my mouth, <laughs> not a silver spoon. Oh, oh man! Oh. You know, uh, like I said, I'm I'm on a tear. Um, we've got a septic system that is, oh good lord, about thirty some odd years old, almost forty years old, and every now and then we have to have it pumped out and. Uh, figure it has to be done today and of course there's some sort of a ring that goes on the top of it that broke a plastic ring so i said all right i'll give you the check when you come back and you finish the job i've been dealing with these people now for more than six years so much to the so that i brag about them to my neighbors i've sent i've sent them over to my mother's house to work on her house i have put down in the local social uh network that we have here called next door that i brag about this company i highly recommended them saying that if i let my mom use them then they're good enough for you uh well the job's not done i've got an open septic system not too far from my window right now and annie is pissed at high holy you know what and I just fired off a really nasty email to the owner of the company. And I guarantee you that come 6 o'clock tonight when I get off the air, the job will not be complete. So we're going to have a weekend probably with an open septic, septic system. And I better hope, they better hope, there's no rain. Because with it open, mm, lordy, lordy, someone is going <laughs> to be hearing the right act read to them. So when I say I'm full of, you know what, today, oh, yeah, I am full of it. And Annie has the oh. checkbook with her, and I'm going to wave it on air. Here's the checkbook. They want the rest of their payment. they got to come through me. <laughs> and they ain't bothering me when I'm on yeah. Anyway. In the Navy, the we, we, had and a phrase, <laughs> we had a phrase called um, being um, full of piss and vinegar. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you sound like today. It's not just piss and vinegar. It's piss and you know what. Yeah, quite a few other things. It's occurring right outside my window, the defecation. I want to welcome everyone that's listening up here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media. If you're listening on SHR Media, I've got the chat room open in the other window. Uh, so feel free to join us over there. Um, I haven't tried yet to go back up onto Facebook and YouTube because I'm still having technical difficulties. 
trying to find someone who is a technician that knows the programs that I'm using and figure out how the settings were messed up by this clown that I hired that gave me a very, very expensive doorstop. Well, the storage stop is back to a computer, which I'm operating out of right now, but the settings have been corrupted, and I can't get my audio to work on YouTube and Facebook. Got it fine on Blog Talk Radio. Got it fine on SHR Media. Logic then dictates that if it's working on those two platforms, then it should work on Facebook and YouTube, but leave it to Annie to have something foul up. Anyway... I want to welcome again everyone that's listening in. I've got the chat room open on Blog Talk as well as SHR Media. And we'll try (coughs) video recording this one more time and see if we can get it up on Facebook and YouTube later on tonight. I've got great guests, Curtis. Mm. Oh, yeah. One of them is um, one of my own, Mr. Larry Harvey, (laughs) Commissioner, County Commissioner. Yes, uh, Larry Harvey. We were going to have Walt Myers the third joining us, but he had another engagement that was slightly more important than ours. I mean, getting a paycheck is a little bit more important than showing up on this show. Not. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, I would say so. Uh, <laughs> we've got a, a friend of the show, another CS. So when he comes <clears throat> on, Curtis, I'm going to be calling him CS, and you'll be Curtis. Uh, CS Walker, former NSA uh, spook. Uh, he'll be joining us. Uh, he's got the lowdown on a lot of stuff. Uh, but we're going to start off the show with Casey Pipes. He's got a brand new book out that just came out this past week called After the Fall, The Remarkable Comeback of Richard Nixon. And believe it or not, as of today, 45 years ago today, is the day that Richard Nixon at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time stepped down as president of the United States resigned, the only president in the United States to ever resign. And he's got a book out about what happened after his fall and his climb back as as an elder statesman of these United States. Amazing, amazing story. Um, That said, excuse me, I feel like I'm coming down with a cold. Um, Anyone that listens to the show knows that we start off each and every show uh, with a dedication to a fallen hero. Um, and we're not talking about Joe Biden and his gaffes. <laughs> I couldn't resist that one, Curtis. Um, so today's yeah, dedication is going. <laughs> yeah, uh, today's dedication is going out to Deputy Sheriff Jacob Howard Keltner of the McHenry County Sheriff's Office out of Illinois. His end of watch was Thursday, March seventh of twenty nineteen. And this comes from several sources, one of them being the Officer Dan Memorial page that you can find at odmp.org, the Chicago Tribune, and the Chilico, the Times Bulletin. Um, so it starts off with the Officer Dan Memorial page, and it reads, Deputy Sheriff Jacob Keltner was shot and killed as he and other members of the Great Lakes Regional Fugitive Task Force attempted to serve an arrest warrant in Rockford, Illinois. The task force located the subject at a hotel at 474 North Bell School Road. They were attempting to arrest the man at 9.15 a.m. when he opened fire with a rifle, striking a woman who was staying with him. The man then exited the room and opened fire on officers who were outside striking Officer Keltner. The man then fled from the hotel and led officers on a pursuit 
that lasted over 150 miles. The vehicle became disabled at I-55 near Lincoln, and the subject was taken into custody after barricading himself inside it for several hours. Deputy Keltner was transported to a local hospital where he succumbed to his wounds approximately six hours after being shot. Deputy Keltner had served with the McHenry County Sheriff's Office for 13 years. He is survived by his wife, two young children, his father and brother, who both work in DuPage County law enforcement and other family members. By John Keelman and Amanda Marazzo. Friends and colleagues of slain McHenry County Deputy Jacob Keltner remembered him at his funeral as a brave and tenacious fugitive hunter who, when the workday ended, transformed into a light-hearted husband and tender father. Officials said about 3,500 people, including hundreds of uniformed police officers from around the country, attended the service, filling two gymnasiums at Woodstock North High School. Keltner's flag-draped casket rested in front of the stage decked with photos of the deputy and his family as other law enforcement officers shared their memories. Quote, Jake hunted evil and violent men, and he was great at it, said Tony Pina, a former, a fellow member of the U.S. Marshal Service Great Lakes Regional Fugitive Task Force. He was truly gifted. Bad guys even respected Jake when they were taken into custody. 621 from County. 621 from County. 621 from County. All units be advised. 621, Deputy Kelters not responding. Those words were spoken in the symbolic last radio call for a McHenry County Sheriff's deputy killed in the line of duty. Nearly a week after Deputy Jacob Keltner was shot outside a Rockford hotel, thousands of mourners and law enforcement officers from around the region and country attended his funeral. Keltner was shot in the head in the parking lot of the Extended Stay America Hotel, located at 474 North Bell School Road. He was pronounced dead a little more than six hours later. As a result, Deputy Keltner has ended his watch, the, the dispatcher said during Keltner's final radio call, a highly emotional tradition in funeral services for officers. Your spirit and strength will live on through your family, both blood and blue. Deputy Jacob Keltner, thank you for your service and ultimate sacrifice. Rest in peace, brother. We will take it from here. The Reverend Kendall Koenig, Senior Pastor of Light of Christ Lutheran Church in Algonquin, who spoke during the funeral, chuckled when calling Keltner the baby whisperer, who magically stood quiet and crying babies and toddlers. Friends, we are not heroes because of how we die, Koenig said. We are heroes for how we live, and you have lived it, Koenig said of Keltner. Koenig said that when Keltner got home, he engaged with his sons, Caleb and Carson, and wife Becky with a tender heart. As recently as the week before he died, 
He had built zip lines for his sons in the basement and had their toys zipping around like hot-wheeled tracks in the air, he said. First responders and police officers from across Illinois attended the funeral and subsequent procession from the Woodstock North High School to a Huntley funeral home. Kane County Undersheriff Pat Gangler said 700 cars were in Keltner's procession. Rockford Police Lieutenant Joel Gibbons was one of 45 to 50 Rockford officers who attended Keltner's funeral. Chief Dan O'Shea and all of the assistant chiefs attended, as well as some lieutenants and sergeants. It, hit, it hits home because it's a fellow officer, Gibbons said. Keltner was a member of the U.S. Marshal's Great Lakes Regional Fugitive Task Force. They were at the hotel to serve arrest warrants on Floyd E. Brown, who was accused of shooting through the door, jumping out of the window, and shooting Keltner in the parking lot before fleeing. He was later caught downstate. Kildare Police uh, Patrol Officer Doug Barris said, while he doesn't know Keltner or his family, he felt compelled to attend his fellow officer's funeral. It's to show support for the family and all the law enforcement officers here, Barris said. I have been in law enforcement for over 30 years. Any first responders are taking their lives on the line, but we're here for a purpose. That purpose is to serve the public. The perpetrator had several warrants for his arrest. He was a very violent person. They were thinking of the female in there, and she wanted to get out, Ferris said. Now we lost a fellow officer because they were trying to take a violent felon off the streets. Mourners packed the main gym at Woodstock North High School, with some overflowing into an auxiliary gym. School district spokesman Kevin Lyons said the main gym's capacity is about 3,000 people. Members of the media were not allowed in the gym or auxiliary gym during the funeral. Downers Grove police officer Brian Matera said he drove about one and a half hours to attend Keltner's funeral, even though he didn't know him. It's important to me so the officers who have given the ultimate sacrifice are remembered as the heroes they are. Matera had a message for Keltner's wife and two sons. Thank you. Thank you for allowing him to protect and serve and keep the citizens safe. Wearing a Harley-Davidson patch on his black motorcycle jacket, McHenry Township Clerk Dan Aylward, a member of the Warriors Watch Riders, expressed his sympathy for Kelton's family, saying his own father was a Chicago police officer. His son-in-law was a police officer in North Carolina, and other relatives were in law enforcement. There is no closure. That's something they're never going to get over, Aylward said. You just get up in the morning and splash water on your face and face another day and go on with it. He said he was praying for Keltner's family. I wish there was something I could do, Aylward said. Unfortunately, there isn't. Just prayer. And I know that someday you'll see him again. And finally, at the end of the service, officers brought Keltner's casket outside to the sound of bagpipes and a 21-gun salute. 
carefully folding the flag and presenting it to his window as a cold rain fell. Then, over a loudspeaker, dispatch supervisor Jeremy Morris announced that Keltner had ended his watch. The men and women of the McHenry County Sheriff's Office are forever grateful and proud to have served with Deputy Keltner and will never forget his ultimate sacrifice, Morris said. Citizens of McHenry County, Illinois, and the United States ask you and thank you for your service. Your spirit and strength will live on through your family, both blood and blue. The casket was placed into a hearse that left the high school on a slow drive to a Hunley funeral home. Three police cars in front, more than 700 trailing behind, as scores of county residents stood solemnly along the roadside. It's tough, but it is great to see all the support out there, said Dan Goldbeck, an employee of the McHenry County Clerk's Office who watched as the procession went by the county courthouse. I think everyone wants to show their respect. He gave his life for all of us. I think that's the least we can do. Today's show is dedicated to Deputy Sheriff Jacob Howard Keltner. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. It's also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there who serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into its future. We dedicate to them this song, Amazing Grace. May God bless each and every one.
All right, and we're back. You're here listening to Seven Cents here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. <laughs> Excuse me, I must be coming down with the cold. But, Curtis, go figure. Did I or did I not call this correctly? <laughs> I said we're going to be on air, and the waste uh, waste company is going to be knocking on the door and as I was in the middle of doing the dedication I could hear them knocking on the front door now I put a I put uh, a note on my front door saying no uh, I'm on do air until at p.m. do not ring the doorbell <laughs> well, <laughs> well maybe saga they can't continues I guess that one of those white kids <laughs> <laughs> Joe Biden <laughs> I don't know. Go figure. Um, uh, Well, I want to again welcome everyone that's listening in in the uh, chat room over here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook. Well, it will be up on YouTube and Facebook hopefully soon. Um, We're waiting for our guests to uh, call in. Uh, Casey S. Pipes should be calling in very shortly. And uh, he's got a great book out, which is really fortuitous because, like I said, he was supposed to be here last Friday. And he had to cancel last minute, so we scrambled and got someone else in on the show last week. Uh, so today, being the 45th anniversary of the resignation of Richard M. Nixon, uh, he will be here speaking with us about his book about the rise and uh, after the fall of Richard Nixon. Excuse me. I'm going to have to take a sip of water. This is crazy. Mm. Wow. And now, I want his to remind- middle name was... His middle name was what? Millhouse, or Millhouse? Yes. Richard Millhouse. Millhouse. Okay. Right, Richard Millhouse. It's a different name. Richard Millhouse. Uh, it uh, actually it's it's a traditionally I believe Quaker. Was he Quaker? Or was he was he a Quaker? He is or a shape? Quaker. He is. He's yeah, a Quaker. Quaker. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, um, so it is a traditional name in in that. Uh, uh, religious faith, and uh, I'm just waiting to see if we got him coming in in the studio, so just bear with me as I'm fudging around here. I've got too many things going up on the screen at the same time. Oh, I, I know what I started to say, uh, is that um, if you are listening in the studio, uh, please remember to press 1 so that I know that you uh, have a comment or a question for us or for our guests. Um so uh, that way we can uh, bring you in into the studio. And I'm trying to see if I can email. Just to, oh, we got a few minutes here. Uh, we do have a few minutes going on. Um, but there is so much going on. Did you by any chance listen to Joe Biden's speech at all, uh, No, Curtis? No, not really. No, I didn't. I um I try to stay away from Joe Biden. He'll have me laughing and have me in stitches. <laughs> <laughs> I listen to the more serious, more non-threatening people like Kamala Harris. I mean, you notice how, how far she's dropped since she attacked um, Uncle Joe? Oh, yeah. She is uh, now down something like 1%. So I guess that's a she's warning pulling. to the others. Don't Don't attack our front runner. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm just sending a quick message. So just if I, if I sound a little strange, it's uh, just sending well, a message to his public. 
find him to call in. I get a little nervous when I have also, someone calling in late. Anyway. Oh yeah, me too. I um, also <laughs> noticed that you you're not hearing too much about this one firefighter who came across this um, young kid walking through a store with body armor and weapons and video, you know, recording himself. And this firefighter um, stopped him with his own personal weapon, an off-duty firefighter. And I haven't heard anything about that in the mainstream news. No, and, you know, we're going to be talking to uh, C.S. Walker a little bit later. And we will mention the shooters because he had – posted something up earlier today on Twitter about these shooters mm. and how the left is going absolutely ape over the oh. fact that the, this guy had mentioned Trump, this one down in Texas, the Texas Walmart in El Paso, uh, had mentioned Trump in his four-page manifesto. But this guy was not a Trump supporter. And if you read the manifesto, which is actually unreadable, really, I tried to wade through it myself, he sounded more like an AOC supporter than a a Trump supporter, honestly. Uh, he went after both political parties. He went after the corporations. He is a pro-environmentalist to the point of being a nut job. Um, so, yeah, it, it, there's a lot to talk about later on when Casey is on the show. And I do believe this is our guest calling in on the line. And is this Casey Pipes? This is. Well, good afternoon, Casey. You know, I sometimes I do think that the good Lord is looking after me at times because you were supposed to be on last week, and instead uh, you had to change to today. And today, it being a momentous day, the only time this has happened in American history to an American president, Richard Nixon resigned on this day as of 12 noon 45 years ago. It's amazing, and of course the story that I was privileged to tell is the 20 years that that began on that August 9th, uh, the last 20 years of his life that we really have not known much about until now. And what I found out uh, in researching it is he was way more active and way more successful during his post-presidency than we've ever realized. He didn't didn't stay down for very long. He made quite a comeback, and that's the story in, in the book. It is a fascinating story, and you know, you had me going back out. Now, I happened to have been alive at the time, a young lady at the time. I was still in school. not I hadn't quite graduated high school just yet there, uh, so I remember everything. Um, I remember watching the fall of Saigon on TV with tears just streaming down my face and my father's face watching the end of the Vietnam War in such a horrific manner, and what ensued after that with the rise of communism in um in vietnam in cambodia and other uh, asian lands around there the rise of the Khmer rouge uh these are all things i lived through and then the fall of richard nixon the attempt to continue to legally go after him afterwards the fight over his library all these things i lived through and you wrote when you wrote about it it was i went back in a time capsule on this one it really is remarkable. I mean, those 20 years from 1974 to 1994 um, were extraordinarily eventful. I mean, he doesn't go quietly away into the good night. Um, and some of that is by necessity. He really, by necessity, redefines the role of the ex presidents. Um, you know, when he becomes an ex president, there are no other ex presidents alive. Johnson and 
Eisenhower and Truman had all died in the previous four years. And so he has to sort of figure out, how do I do this? And he decides to not retire, essentially, uh, because he has to make a living. He has huge financial bills. He has huge legal bills coming in. He has $500 in the bank account at one point in late 1974. Um, so he's got to figure out, what do I do with the rest of my life? He's been disbarred in, in New York. He has to resign the bar in California, so he can't practice law. And what he does is he creates a new type of former president. Former presidents used to basically just retire. Johnson went to his ranch. Eisenhower went to Gettysburg and played golf. Um, Nixon goes to work. He goes into the office every day. He starts writing books, particularly on foreign policy, and eventually he becomes a trusted advisor uh, and counselor to three presidents. So it's, it's remarkable how successful he was, and it's interesting that former presidents that we know today, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, they are much closely following the, the Nixon model than they are any other previous ex-president. They don't retire. They, they go to work too, and so this is the Nixon model of an active ex-president trying to still be involved, influencing policy where he can, and it really came from Nixon, and it came from necessity. It's funny because if you look at former presidents, uh, a lot of them ended up uh, in their later years being destitute. Harry Truman had to be bailed out. He was that broke. Right. And with Nixon uh, setting a whole new model, he says, listen, i got a problem. I've got all these medical bills that because he, he got very, very sick. He had he uh, thrombosis, which is a blood clot in the leg. And since I'm someone that suffers from atrial fibrillation, when I'm reading that part of his life and what he was going through, I could really relate to a lot of that. I mean, medicine has you know advanced to the point where a lot of what he went through back then, people don't have to suffer from today. Thank God for that. Um, but he almost lost his life. He came very close to dying. And then later on, a short time later, his wife, Pat Nixon, took gravely ill with a stroke. And she was always the strong one. You know, everyone Correct. relied on Pat to hold it together. You know, he was absolutely destitute when she fell ill. Correct. I mean, it's it's remarkable the, the health challenges that both of them faced. And as you say, in the, the fall of 1974, uh, he's rushed, rushed to Long Beach Hospital. Emergency surgery is performed. Um, he does come very close to dying, and it's a turning point in this story. He writes in his diary a few weeks later back in San Clemente, kind of realizing that he can't just sit around and feel sorry for himself. He's got to get up and do something, and he starts imagining. He starts trying to imagine what that something would be, and he realizes that um, he needs to write a book. He, he, he writes this in his diary. He's going to write a book, maybe more, um, give speeches, appear on television, and try to put things into perspective. This is exactly the roadmap he begins to follow as 1975 begins. He starts with his memoirs, and then he goes on to write uh, eight other books, mostly on foreign policy, which become bestsellers. Um, he's saying things on foreign policy that are interesting to people, and they're interesting to, to powerful people, people like Ronald Reagan who reads The Real War, a book Nixon writes in 1980 about the Soviet Union. And loves it. It confirms Reagan's own views about the Soviet Union, and so they become 
even closer than they had been before. So he becomes very, very active. He, he does climb his way out of debt. He does become physically healthier again. Uh, Pat struggles during this time, as you mentioned, with her own health challenges. She suffers a stroke. She dies before him in 1993. Uh, but she remains very strong, and she's a big part of this story because she felt that he had been unfairly treated and had paid quite a price um, for Watergate and, and wanted to see him uh, sort of rehabilitate himself in some way. And so she's every bit his partner during this journey, and it's it's a remarkable journey they go on together. Well, I, I've got the chat room going, and uh, someone is asking a question in there that Nixon had two daughters. And I do remember mm-hmm. that little black uh, Scottish terrier that he had was adorable. Yeah. Uh, but he uh, – was it Tricia that was married in the White House? I know one was married in the White House Correct. and one wasn't. And, Tricia married uh, Ed Tricia, in the Rose Garden. Yes. Right. And the other one married an Eisenhower, and I thought it was so ironic because Eisenhower could not stand Richard Nixon. The Eisenhower family wanted nothing to do with the Nixons, and the fact that one of the daughters had the audacity to marry an Eisenhower. Oh, the scandal that was going on back then. Well, David marries Julie um... – Prior to President Nixon entering the White House, and David becomes – David Eisenhower, one of the grand, Eisenhower grandchildren, uh, becomes very close with uh, his father-in-law, and, and he features in this book as well. Um, he's very much trying to encourage his father-in-law during the post-presidency, trying to prop him up and, and get him back on his feet again, and Ed Cox as well. Um, they both lived on the on the East Coast and still do. Ed and Tricia uh, at, at that time and, and still now live in New York City, uh, and Julie and David live in the Philadelphia area. And one of the things that happens in the book about six years into Nixon's post-presidency is he sells uh, the house in San Clemente and moves to New York, and he does this for a couple of reasons. One is to be closer to his family. He's starting to have grandkids by now, and he wants to be around them, and he wants to be a part of their lives, and he very much is a very doting grandfather. Um, but he also wants to be closer to obviously the political capital of the country in Washington, but really the, the media capital and the financial capital of the world, which is New York. Uh, he calls it the fastest track in the world, and he knows if he's going to make a comeback, he's going to have to be in the media, and, and if he's going to be in the media, then that's going to be… Uh, mostly on the East Coast in New York. So he makes the strategic decision to move back to the East, and it proves to be a wise one. Uh, he originally lives in New York, and then they moved to New Jersey a few years later, uh, and he's there the rest of his life. And the, many of the, the stories in this book, the stories of his comeback occur uh, right there on the East Coast. Well, you know, one thing I, I noticed that you did not have in the book was about his faith. And I remember the election of John F. Kennedy, and it's like, you can't have a Catholic. You could be more uh, beholden to the Pope than he would be to the U.S. Constitution. And something similar happened to Richard Nixon when you know he ran for election. Uh, they were questioning whether or not he would be more adherent to the faith, his faith than to um, the Constitution. And I, I didn't see anything about his continued faith in his re- retirement. 
There are a couple of glimpses of it. Uh, there's a story in the book about when he goes to visit his friend Bud McFarland, who had been Reagan's national security advisor and during the Iran-Contra scandal had attempted suicide. And When he awoke in the hospital, there was Richard Nixon uh, sitting at his bedside uh, waiting on him and, and uh, wanting to cheer him up, and Nixon visits with him, and he points to um, – the Bible on the nightstand next to the bed, and he tells McFarland, you're going to need an anchor if you're going to climb out of this, and your faith can be that anchor. It can help you out of this. Um, he talked towards the end of his life with his aide, Monica Crowley, uh, about going to a, a wedding in, in, in a church setting and how um, you know, churches – religion is complicated. People, people go about it different ways, and and he says to her, "You know, the only reason I don't really attend regularly is is because it, it would be such a distraction uh, to have to go in and um, you know security and all of the things that would that would entail if he made an appearance." But he's still very aware of the spiritual element to life. He he just he was a private man, as you know, and it was not something that he was terribly uh, reflective about. But I think it, it it was there underneath the core, and it was a part of what drove him. He felt that he was not done. He felt that there was something else he could give that he could offer, which is a very biblical concept that you know we're all given gifts from God to use. And I think he certainly felt that particularly his insights and his gift on foreign policy and world affairs was something that he wasn't done with, and he wanted to use those gifts for the rest of his life, and he did, and that's the story in this book. And it is such a fascinating story uh, on this one. And one of the things that I, I found that when you're reading this story at this point in time, the correlation to what is going on now with Trump. Now, I know you, you write for Politico and a couple of other USA Today, so I know you're following this, but I find it quite ironic that here we have both Republicans, uh, both were facing impeachment, uh, and you know, the, both was a, an attempt to bring down a presidency that the left doesn't agree with. And I, I find the parallel very interesting. Well, there's been much made of this, of course, um, in the media, and there there certainly are – similarities between the two. There's also vast differences, of course, but uh, they certainly shared a contempt, uh, I would say, for mainstream media. Um, Nixon was a little more reserved in the language he used publicly, at least, to describe the media than the current president is, but I don't think he thought much more of them uh, than Trump does. He certainly would have um, – I mean, the phrase "fake news" is certainly something that he would have um, would have appealed to him. I think he felt a lot of his coverage was probably fake news. Uh, so there are similarities there. I, I mean, the scandals are obviously different. Uh, one of them was sort of, uh, I mean, the Watergate scandal is, and the book sort of begins after Watergate, but it, it deals with kind of the aftermath of it a bit. I mean, Watergate was sort of him almost kind of covering for his friends when he found out you know, they had had a role in this. It was not something he had been a part of originally. Um, the Russia stuff is sort of a whole different category of, of allegations, so I don't, I don't know that they're similar in that regard. Um, but I do think you know, one thing I've written about publicly is the comparisons on foreign policy, where I think in some ways Trump represents a throwback to Nixon. Nixon believed in realism that foreign policy, American foreign policy should be based on American national interests. 
not on humanitarianism, not on promoting human rights. Those things are fine. They're important, but they're secondary goals. The main goal should be protecting American interests around the world, and I think Trump, although he's clumsier in how he goes about it, I think he <laughs> would say that that's what he's trying to do. Um, he was asked a few weeks ago about American troops in Afghanistan, and he said, you know, we can't be the police in the world. We can't be building schools for everybody. Uh, these are sort of shades of Nixon, shades of realism uh, coming out. So I do think there's comparisons there, and um, that's something that I think we'll continue to see going forward. Well, I, I've Casey. got that all highlighted because anyone anyone that knows me, I've got the book up in front of the camera right now. They can see that I've got my little uh, post-it notes all over the place. I don't have uh-huh. anything handwritten down. I've got a ton of post-it notes, as my co-host will tell you. Uh, my co-host is Curtis C.S. Bennett, who's got 24 books out there. So, Casey, you got a ways to catch up. Go ahead, Curtis. Uh, a long way to go. Casey, um, how close were um, Nixon and Kissinger and – and what's the difference between their relationship uh, with China and, and Trump's relationship with, with China? I don't know that I would say they were close. Uh, they respected each other uh, intellectually, um, and there was almost a, a bit of a competition between them. Um, certainly when Nixon was in office and, and to some extent uh, and Robert Dalek has written about this in his book uh, about Nixon and Kissinger, even in the post-presidency. There was sort of some kind of jockeying for who deserved credit for what uh, because even, even in the aftermath of Watergate, um, Nixon was seen as being a foreign policy success as president. So um, I don't know that I would say they were necessarily close, um, but again, Nixon was not – not terribly close. To, I mean, he was not the type to have, uh, you know, deep, warm type friendships. He had them with a few people, a few close intimates, but not usually working associates. In terms of China, it's a fascinating question. Um, and I always say Nixon's initiative to China in some ways is, is misunderstood today, or it's, or it's misremembered. Um, he was not doing it out of a, a naive posture for uh, goodwill in the world. He was doing it as an act of the Cold War. He wanted to find a way to drive a wedge between the Chinese uh, and their their patron, which was the Soviets. And so it was very much a shrewd Cold War strategy to sort of divide uh, these two allies uh, from each other. And so he saw the opening to China very much through the lens of the Cold War. Now, he certainly recognized, as he said, that you can't ignore a country of this size. I mean, he would talk about it you know, that when he was alive, it was 750 million. Of course, it's over a billion today. Um, you can't just simply pretend they're not there and that Taiwan is, is the one China. Obviously, they're, they're China, and, and they're there, and we're better off engaging with them and having a relationship with them than we are trying to ignore them. But that having been said, I mean, he was, as I said, he was not naive. I mean, he certainly knew uh, what they were capable of doing. Uh, I tell the story in the book of him traveling to China in the aftermath of Tiananmen Square and meeting with Deng Xiaoping and saying, one more incident like that uh, could be the death of the Chinese relationship with the U.S. I mean, just brutal, blunt language, um, by no means. 
letting them off the hook. By no means saying, you know, oh, this will die down. You know, don't worry about it. I mean, telling them, you guys better knock this off. This is this is totally unacceptable. You're totally out of line, uh, and it could affect your relationship with the U.S. So he was very aware of what the Chinese were capable of. Now, in terms of what in terms of what Trump is doing today, um, boy, it's it, it's hard to say. I mean, Nixon was not a big tariffs fan. I, I can't imagine him um, thinking that's a good approach. But again, he certainly would not be naive. He would have a very uh, realist approach to it, and uh, and one that saw things for what they are. Well, what I, what I find amazing, and there is a similarity here because. Uh, when Nixon did go to China, he had a lot of American oil companies that wanted to ride on his coattails and open mm-hmm. up companies in China. And Nixon mm-hmm. refused to do that. He knew what the dangers were going to be, and he didn't want to have that as a negotiation tool on the side of the Chinese to be held against the United States. He was very shrewd. He would not go into a negotiation with a give and take. He always went in there with a power of strength. And he, he understood the mentality of the Chinese mind as well as of the Soviet mind. He understood that you do not go in there putting stuff on the table to give away. You went in there saying, you are going to give me whether you like it or not. It's true, and a lot of this comes out in the book during the Reagan chapters of the book where he's working with President Reagan behind the scenes as President Reagan is negotiating with Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, Nixon wanted Reagan to um, – he wanted him to negotiate, but he, but he wanted him to negotiate from a position of strength, and he wanted him to, to not just seek a deal for the sake of having a deal but to get a deal that was meaningful. And his definition of meaningful was when the Soviets uh, would, would make concessions, major concessions, both in terms of their nuclear weaponry and their conventional weaponry. Um, so he, he's very involved in the late 1980s, probably more than anybody's realized before uh, in encouraging President Reagan uh, to, to negotiate but to take a hard line. And, of course, one of the sticking points that comes up during this time period, and I talk about this in the book, is SDI, which was President Reagan's mm-hmm. plans for a defensive Star shield, Wars. a nuclear defensive shield, Star Wars, as Ted Kennedy called it. That's right. And, of course, Gorbachev sort of balks. At this idea, and, and at Reykjavik, you know, famously, um, the deal falls apart because he he says at the last minute this all is contingent upon SDI going away, and Reagan wouldn't give it up. Nixon helps square the circle. He suggests uh, to the Reagan White House, "Why don't you offer to share the technology? It's a defensive technology. There's 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 nothing offensive about it. There's nothing to be scared of. If we have it, they can have it too. It's it's a protection." And so. By offering to do that, you sort of take away – you diffuse the issue, and you take away the excuse that Gorbachev was using to avoid uh, further meetings. And of course, this is essentially what Reagan does, and it does to some extent work. Uh, they do continue meeting, and of course they end up with the INF Treaty in 1987, uh, which ironically uh, Nixon publicly breaks with Reagan on. He thought Reagan gave up too much uh, in, the, in the details of the negotiation. But it's just fascinating how involved he was behind the scenes uh, and that he was, if anything, moving to the right uh, in these years on foreign policy. He's actually in 1987 when the INF Treaty is signed, moving to the right of President Reagan, who we think of as being 
more conservative than than Nixon. So uh, just a fascinating series of conversations between the two, and again, a little bit of history that uh, has not previously been known. Well, he was one of the few presidents as early as he did recognizing the power of the press, and I think that drove home his first failed debate with uh, John Kennedy, how Kennedy came out looking like the boy wonder and Nixon like the buffoon. Uh, a lot of it had to do with the makeup and camera angles and the preparation. Um, he understood from that moment forward that you had to schmooze the press. But also you write in your book, uh, which I found very, very uh, interesting, that Nixon managed to take shots at some familiar suspects. Years before, conservatives were complaining about fake news. And this is what we mentioned earlier. Nixon accused mm-hmm. television of having shortened the public's attention span. He also portrayed the media as an entity filled with pervasive left-wing bias. Academia came under fire as well. Tenured professors too often lived in the stratosphere of the absurd. And then he also went after the bureaucrats, uh, calling them the federal civil servants of being institutionally lethargic, the swamp. He was saying all these things long before Trump ever mentioned it. It, it's remarkable, and and again, you know, I, I think there are this this kind of falls into that category of, of some of the similarities the two men share. Um, it's interesting. He he actually, in some ways, had his eye on Trump. Uh, there's a story in the book where Pat watches Trump on a television show and is is impressed with how well he performs and handles himself. She mentions it to her husband, and he writes Trump a note and says, "My wife Pat saw you on television. She said you were great." And if you ever run for for office someday, you'll be a natural. And that note is now framed and hanging in the Oval Office today. It's one of Trump's prized possessions. So he always had a, a political sixth sense. He always was watching races and watching rising political figures and sort of handicapping races. And, and uh, it's just amazing how, how insightful he could be even into his old age. I mean he's uh, – as he's you know preparing to die in 1994, I mean, he he wants obviously he wants Bill Clinton to deliver a eulogy because he's the Democratic president, and it's the perfect capstone on his comeback. But he also wants Bob Dole and Pete Wilson to deliver eulogies, and the reason for that is he thought they would both end up running for president in '96, which they did, uh, and he thought that you know one of them might likely end up being the nominee, which turns out was correct. It was Bob Dole, so he was always thinking ahead, and he was always thinking strategically. Uh, he had a really finely tuned sixth sense, and he could kind of anticipate things down the road, and um, I don't think that left him all the way up until the very end. No, he, he played life as a chess match. He was always having several moves ahead, and it's ironic because, as you said, he always had his eye out there, and he didn't originally have too much credence in Ronald Reagan until he saw Reagan working the crowd, working the media, and Reagan's quick wit and ready response. He helped Reagan actually prep for a lot of these debates. Uh, Not, should say, lockers. Back then, debates were rare. You may have only one between uh, presidential candidates throughout the entire campaign. Not like you see today. It's like every other week, the the Democrats, all 20 of them, are up on a stage debating each other ad nauseum. Um, I have to have a barf bag on my lap when I try to watch it. it, it but it was, it was something that was special where you got to see the candidates 
hone their skills, put their policies out there, not like what we see today. It was a completely different way of, of choosing a candidate. Yeah, and he saw that Reagan was a natural at the the public element of of politics, and he he wanted to find ways for Reagan to take advantage of that. So he he did send memos to the Reagan team uh, in 1980, suggesting uh, even sound bites, you know, things that he could say um, during the debates. Um, he thought that Reagan would do better than most people. I mean, people forget now, looking back, I mean, people thought, oh, Reagan's not, you know, he's not as smart as Carter. You know, Carter was an engineer. He's so smart. And, you know, will he be able to stand his ground and talk about the issues? Nixon had no such fears. He thought Reagan was going to was going to be fine on camera. Uh, and he thought he was a natural as a communicator. He, he said to his son, Ed Cox, I have a great mind. Reagan has a great gut. And what he meant by that was Reagan's instinct and his ability to connect with ordinary people. And so shortly after the Reagan administration begins, he's still looking for ways to take advantage of Reagan's communication ability. And one of the ideas he comes up with is an idea he suggests to Mike Deaver, who was Reagan's longtime communications guru. And he suggests to him, why don't you create a Sunday radio address where the president could speak to the country and kind of set the table for the news that week. Of course, Deaver changes it to Saturday, but the Saturday morning radio address begins in 1982, and we think of it as an invention of Ronald Reagan's, and, and it was, but the idea came from Richard Nixon, uh, and we've never known that before. So he was very involved behind the scenes, and he wanted to find ways to capitalize on Reagan's uh, great assets, which was his communication ability. He, he really admired Reagan for his ability to communicate. Uh, and I think in some ways you're right. It goes back to 1960 when you know, people listening on the radio thought Nixon won the debate. People watching television thought Kennedy won the debate. He, he did learn a lesson from that, that uh, image does matter. And uh, you know, Reagan had that ability to not only look good on camera but inspire people, um, and Nixon – respected that at a very deep level and wanted to find ways to take advantage of it. And the Saturday morning radio address was one of those ways. You know, he was a very, very interesting and amazing man. Go ahead, Curtis. In reaching out to uh, China, Clinton is said to have given up a lot of uh, technology that um, China was able to use um, militarily, um, was Nixon careful not to go that far in reaching out to China? Yeah, I mean, remember, when Nixon was president, this was very, very early first steps in the relationship. So, um, I mean, the normalization and the, and the details in the in the agreement came along much later. Um, some of that came along in 79. Uh, with, with President Carter, and so, and then of course in the in the the late 80s and, and the early 90s, um, that's when you began to see uh, issues like most favored trade, most favored nation trade status was a big issue in Congress. Uh, that comes up in the book during the Tiananmen Square episode, where President Bush uh, is concerned that there's going to be a, a pushback in Congress to punish the Chinese essentially, and restrict trade, which would, of course, hurt American commerce as well, and he wanted to avoid that. And 
again, I think Nixon's trip to China and his blunt language um, perhaps perhaps helped on some of that. Um, I think that you know the, the supercomputer stuff that came up in the late 90s and the, you know, some of the charges that the Chinese were using this for military purposes. I mean, that sort of um, is after Nixon's death. I don't know that there's – I don't know that I saw anywhere where he commented on that or, or took a position on any of that. Um, and his conversations with Clinton, interestingly enough, um, although they were somewhat extensive during the last year of his lifetime, um, almost entirely focused on Russia or Bosnia. Uh, were the two topics that they worked on the most. And it's interesting, Nixon believed the Bush administration had not done enough to support the democratization of Russia as it moved away from communism. Uh, he wanted them to use American power and prestige to sort of help that along. Clinton was a little more willing to do that and, uh, and to support Yeltsin publicly, uh, and that's what Nixon – thought he should be doing it. So they actually – again, politics makes for strange bedfellows. They saw that part of the world in a similar light, um, and I think that probably drew them closer together. And of course Nixon dies, and when, when Clinton does the, the eulogy, he references that you know, even up until the very end, I was seeking out his advice and counsel, and his mind was sharp, and uh, he was giving me you know, great, great advice. So um, – they became fairly friendly during this time, it's, which again is remarkable when you think back on Watergate 20 years prior to that and Hillary working on the you know, Senate committee investigating Watergate. Uh, here's her husband 20 years later praising him and saying in the speech, in the eulogy, may the day of judging Richard Nixon on only Watergate come to an end. You have to consider um, – the whole career and the whole life and the whole man, basically, is what he said, and it's a, a remarkable uh, coda to the to the Nixon comeback and the Nixon story. Well, you know, one of the things that I was thinking of when I was reading the passages uh, when Nixon was dealing with Russia uh, and his advice to uh, Ronald Reagan at the time, and as I said, this is I was a young woman at that point, you know, had my own business back then at that time, and looking at the prosperity we were having and Reagan's uh, approachment to the Soviet Union. Um, just about a decade before, there was a rising of the students in Russia. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be honored uh, sometime later on this month to interview one of the main students behind that uh, uprising who's got a book out um, now, uh, Vladimir Bukovsky. And he spent 12 years in Soviet prisons and Soviet mental hospitals. Uh, and I think a lot of what Richard Nixon saw during those 60s and 70s may have given him the belief that one day Russia would be more of a democracy than a communist country. We see it reversing now under Putin, but um, I think he foresaw it with the youth uprising of the 60s and 70s. He definitely begins to evolve in, on this issue over time. I mean he's – we think of Nixon and we think of detente, which is the idea that um, the Soviets aren't going to go away. We need to manage them as best we can, uh, and we think of Reagan as sort of rejecting detente and wanting regime change, wanting to uh, destroy communism and replace it with a democracy. 
But the reality is that uh, Nixon began moving in that direction himself, and it may well have been some of his travels as you mentioned. Um, but he certainly saw the Soviets in a more negative light uh, by the time 1980 rolls around than he had before. Um, he writes in the real world in the real war, um, about being more assertive with the Soviets, about taking a more aggressive posture with them. Um, and again, this is confirming what Reagan already believed. Reagan reads the book and is, is informed by the book, but it, this is kind of where Reagan already was. And so Nixon begins moving in that direction, and I think in many ways, as I've said earlier, um, almost kind of moves past Reagan to the right. Um, he's very skeptical. Of the Soviets by the end of the 1980s. Um, now, when the wall does come down and, and communism does break down and Gorbachev leaves power and Yeltsin comes in, um, he sees that as a real opportunity for the U.S. to uh, get involved and promote um, the democratization of the region, including the Baltic republics, which were breaking away. One of the people that um, ironically – Interestingly enough, endorsed my book on the back was Bill Clinton's ambassador to Estonia, which is one of those uh, new democracies that emerged. Um, and so as I said, Clinton and Nixon kind of saw that process the same way, whereas in some ways Nixon and Bush didn't. But I do think he, he changed a little bit on the issue over time. He, he took a harder line on the Soviets as time went on. Um, and he, you know, he tells there's a there's a story in the book where he's talking to Monica Crowley, his assistant, at the end of of the Cold War. Once the Soviet Union has disintegrated, he references back to the Kitchen debate with Khrushchev. You know, when Khrushchev said, "We'll bury you," and you know, Nixon makes the comment that, you know, I I, I didn't I didn't think he was right, but I I never thought we'd bury them. <laughs> And he lived to see it. I mean, he saw the whole trajectory of the Cold War from its inception at the end of World War II uh, to its end, its successful end for the West uh, in the early 1990s, and he was a huge part of it. And his thinking and his writing was a huge part of it, and a lot, and a lot of that is what I detail in, in After the Fall. Yeah, and he had a marvelous 20 years. The first few years were pretty hard for him, you know, because coming from such a height, and he, you write about it extensively in his philosophy about, you know, he knew he was going to go into a really dark period, but he knew that you start the journey with the first step, and he approached everything in his life with just the first step, and how in many ways he was humble too where he every single day he would dress in his blue suit and tie and he would walk to his office later on when he moved to New Jersey. And I found this amazing that he would actually walk to his office through Manhattan. And of course, I'm sure he had his secret service, you know, tagging along, but then commuting from Saddlebrook, was it Saddlebrook, New Jersey was, uh, to Manhattan, to his office to work every day. And how he understood the trappings of the office as president, and then his humble trappings, and he kept his offices very meek and meager. He did. I mean, he 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 does move to Saddle River, as you mentioned uh, later in the exile period, uh, but he's still very accessible. I mean, he's going out in public. He has restaurants he likes to frequent. 
Um, there's a story I tell in the book about him um, showing up at a Burger King in New Jersey and you know walking around signing autographs for everybody. I mean, he very much viewed his comeback as having to include interactions with the public, and and he he welcomes that. And I think for the most part, generally these interactions are very positive. Um, people, at least the ones that come up to him, at least the ones I, I write about in the book, are are sympathetic to him. A lot of people felt that he had already paid an enormous price and um, almost felt sorry for him, and there was a lot of goodwill towards him during this time period. Um, but he's, he's, he increasingly is seen in the public. One of the first uh, public outings he makes uh, in the mid-'70s is Hubert Humphrey's funeral, and I write about this in the book. This was all orchestrated by Hubert Humphrey, who of course had been his opponent in the 1968 presidential election. And Humphrey, when he was dying of cancer, called and said to Nixon, I want you to come to my funeral. And he said to his wife when he hung up the phone, he said, no president should live in exile. He did it on purpose. He wanted the public to see that if Hubert Humphrey, his Democratic opponent in 1968, could forgive Nixon and take him back, so should everybody else. And that was a big turning point uh, when Nixon – because he did go to the funeral, and he was seen in public, and it was his first trip back to Washington since Watergate. And it was a big moment. It was covered widely in the media, and I think – more and more people began to accept him, and they began to see him. And then, of course, you know the Frost interviews. I mean, the first, the first night of the Frost oh, interviews, there were forty-five that. million viewers. Yeah, I was yeah. Just I mean, there were forty-five million viewers it's, to this day. It's the most watched political interview in history. So there was people were interested in Nixon, and they wanted to hear from him, and they they bought his books. His books became bestsellers, and he understood this on an instinctual level that. Part of the comeback had to include the public. They had to see him. They had to touch him. They had to hear from him, and he wasn't afraid of that. He was willing to do that, and it it turned out to be a very shrewd move on his part. Absolutely, and that David Frost interview um, – excuse me. That was one of his major forays in getting back onto his financial you know, footings. But reading about the negotiations and what was going back and forth behind the scenes – and how David Frost at certain points thought he had that huge aha uh-huh, got you moment where yeah. he tried to get Nixon several times to right. admit not moral culpability but legal responsibility for the Watergate break-ins, and Nixon would not bend. Uh, I think there was at one point they stopped the interview because Nixon just was getting right. that pissed off, uh, right. which I don't blame him. But the way Nixon handled it and – his response, his response to David Frost at that moment in the interview, I think, was the, the biggest turning point besides the, the Humphrey um, funeral. I think that was the pivotal point when the American public said, enough is enough. Let it go. It's interesting. It, it's other than the, the written statement that he put out after he accepted the pardon, it was the first time he had publicly commented. Uh, on Watergate, on his role in Watergate, and it's it's a fascinating story because, as you say, it's in some ways it's misunderstood. Um, the story that Frost has put forward for years was that you know they had kind of trapped him and and had this line of questioning ready and uh, were able to get you know some sort of a confession out of him. 
The real story is quite different. Um, he certainly knew the question was coming, and during the actual taping, Frost was very assertive during this period of the taping and was sort of talking over Nixon a little bit, and his, his Nixon's chief of staff, Colonel Jack Brennan, held up a sign that said, let him talk, and Frost misread it thought it said, let's talk. <laughs> yeah. And so he took a break. So they, they turned <laughs> off the cameras, and you know Brennan talked to Frost and said, you've got to back off. You've got to let him answer your questions. Well, in the meantime, Nixon – this is the part we've never really known until now. Nixon went back to his holding room to meet with his aide, Ken Kachigian, who I interviewed for the book, and they talked about this line of questioning and how you know Nixon said he wants me to say I committed a crime. I didn't commit a crime, and I'm not going to say that. And Kachigian says, well, what do you want to say? And he said, well, I'm the truth, you know, that I let people down, and this thing snowballed, and it got out of control, and it certainly was my responsibility, and I, I, I feel terrible about it. And Kachigian says, that's the perfect answer. That's exactly what you should say. So they go back out on the set. They turn on the cameras. Frost picks up where he left off, and you know, again, far from being this accidental confession… Nixon gives this answer that he and Kachigian had just worked on together, and he says, you know, I, I, I didn't commit a crime, but I, you know, he basically says he was morally wrong and that it was something that he would live with, and he let the country down. And Frost kind of persists in the line of questioning and says, well, you know, what about impeachment? And Nixon famously says, I impeached myself. I mean, very strong language, and it, it's an important moment because this essentially is the formula. That Nixon will return to throughout the rest of his life whenever the topic of Watergate comes up. He will not ever say he committed a crime, which I don't – I didn't find any evidence that he thought that he did. I mean even in private. I mean he felt that he hadn't, but he certainly knew he had done things wrong, and he certainly knew that he had uh, tried to protect people he shouldn't have tried to protect and, and had become a part of a cover-up whether it crossed a legal line or not. He certainly let the country down, and that's the line that he returns to throughout the rest of his life. He did feel remorse. I mean, this is one of the the myths that he, you know, was trying to rewrite history during this twenty years, rewrite Watergate. Um, I didn't, I didn't find a lot of evidence of that. I found evidence of a guy who felt remorse uh, and certainly had paid a price for it, and was just trying to. Put the pieces back together as, as best he could, and so the Frost interviews are uh, an important part of the, this story, but I, I I try to shed some light on it that I think is important, and, and it's a little bit of context that hasn't been told before. You know, what I found amazing is you know the fierce loyalty of his family, especially his wife, Pat, and how she was his best defender, uh, where he wanted to accept moral responsibility. She didn't even want him to do that. That's how much she felt he was in the right, and the media and the public were giving a wrong story. You know, she was so staunchly strong behind him, such a strong-willed woman, and yet she also had not so great a, a past before she met Richard Nixon, and that's where her strength and stoicism came from. They were a great, a great team. I mean they complemented each other very well. Um, she was very, very tough, as you know. She she took Watergate very hard. She took it very personally. She felt that um, her husband had been in some ways treated unfairly. 
um, that he had paid too great a price. Um, and, uh, you know, she, it, it hurt her very personally that sort of the, the legacy of Watergate and the shame of the scandal was something that, that I think weighed on her quite a bit. And, um, but that, you know, she was as defiant as he was. I mean, she was as resilient as he was in many ways. And, um, she spent her time and energy during this period. Um, largely with her family and being a, a mother and a grandmother, um, and but I think it I think it clearly took a toll on her physically. Um, you know she has the stroke in '76, um, of course she you know dies in '93. I mean it it was a it it was a hard journey for her those last 20 years. It was a, a in some ways a a real struggle, but she had a lot of grit and a lot of tenacity and I think she probably relished him achieving some level of redemption uh, probably as much or more than, than anyone did. You know, I also found amazing is that how many people that had served with him in his administration uh, stayed staunchly loyal to him. And those connections later on became his pipeline back into the white house. Uh, some were great pipelines. Others were people that kind of like stepped on their own, you know what, like Al Haig. Uh, who can forget that that immorable that 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 day uh, right after Reagan was shot, and Al Haig turns around and says, "I'm in charge." Uh, excuse me, there's a vice president before you. <laughs> You're in charge of what, Al? You know, but he had was staunchly loyal to those individuals, and they in turn returned that loyalty. He was, and he was a tremendous networker. Um, he was a pretty good friend. I mean he was a guy that would, as I mentioned with Bud McFarlane, um, at a time when everyone was probably hiding from Bud McFarlane. He was sort of radioactive. Uh, Nixon shows up in his hospital room and is cheering him up. Um, so he was, he was very close to a number of people, particularly in the Reagan administration. A lot of them had… Nixon ties, people like Lynn Nofziger, who had worked for Nixon and had worked for Reagan previously, uh, Mike Deaver he had known for years, uh, obviously Al Haig that you mentioned is, is Reagan's first secretary of state, uh, George Schultz who becomes the secretary, secretary of state and had worked for Nixon as well. I mean these were all people that he was very, very familiar with and very comfortable with. Now it's not to say that um, he always agreed with, with what they were doing or uh, – they always agree with the advice he was giving them, but he had an open line. Pat Buchanan is another one who shows up in the second Reagan term as, as in the communication shop, had been with Nixon for years. And these are people that, that Nixon could pick up the phone and call or, or send a letter to or send a memo to, and he was not shy about doing just that, and they were not shy about doing the same, calling him, asking him what did he think about uh, what was going on. And so uh, he, he – again, just tremendous access. During these years, much more uh, than I think we've realized before, and he was very careful to make sure that he took advantage of it. And of course, the way to take advantage of it was to have something important to say, something to offer, some you know shrewd advice and counsel. And that's uh, that's what he does. You know, whether it's sending a note to Mike Deaver about creating a Saturday morning radio address, or sending a note to Bud McFarlane about using SDI and the Gorbachev negotiations, he's always thinking ahead, and he's always offering 
his advice, and he and he had a very deferential tone. I mean, he would say in some of these communiques, you know, you know, you can ignore this, or you know, take which parts of it you want, or. Um, but he was he was very very valuable during this time to not just President Reagan, but a number of people around President Reagan, and um, just fascinating to watch him use these relationships, and and that's a big part of his story. That it is. That it is. What I also found was his total disdain, which I I couldn't dis, uh, agree with more, of Jimmy Carter. Uh, at yeah. the time Carter became president, I said, and my ex-husband would echo everything I said, uh, was that you know I thought Carter would be the worst president ever. I didn't think that someone could surpass him. I didn't think that was possible. But Carter was a micromanager. And despite the fact Nixon really did not like him too much and Carter couldn't stand Nixon, Carter did listen to his advice. Yeah, I mean I think of the of the presidents that were around during the Nixon post-presidency, Ford and Carter were the two that he had the sort of least uh, impact with for, for, for different reasons. But uh, in the case of Carter… Um, Nixon, as you as you said, didn't think much of him. He thought he was in over his head, particularly on foreign policy. Uh, he thought the way that he handled um, the Shah of Iran, who had been a longstanding ally of the U.S. Again, going back to Nixon's view of the world and realism and protecting our national interests and our, our allies, he he really was sort of appalled at how all of that went down. And, and then, of course, when the, the hostage crisis takes place in Iran, he uh, appalled at the the Carter reaction to it, and but he sees it as as sort of almost necessary for the country to take a leap of faith uh, as they as they do and vote for Reagan, and so he sees the opening for Reagan uh, in 1980 that people will want to respond to the weakness of Carter with the strength of of Reagan, and and that Reagan's sort of hard edged. Um, Cold War ide- ideology um, might actually work to Reagan's favor, and of course it did. And so he um, did not have a lot of influence during the Carter years uh, and was not a fan of the Carter years, but uh, certainly welcomed uh, the new administration in 1981, and he certainly made the most of that. Uh, it is a very, very fascinating book. The name of the book. Excuse me. Is after the fall the remarkable comeback of Richard Nixon? Uh, and matter of fact, to let you know, Casey, most of the people that listen to the show because this is you know just a podcast also will listen to the uh-huh. podcast. So when they look at the description, they see a link directly to your website, which is your name, KCSPipes.com, and they can get this book and the other books that you've also written, such as the one on Eisenhower and a lot of other great, great, interesting right. books out there. And people can find you up on USA Today as, politi- as well as political. Uh, you're sure. quite pro- prolific out there. Um, it, it is a very, very fascinating book, and there's so much to talk about. Um, what I found fascinating was Nixon's reaction to the downing of KL, the Korean airline, KAL-007, um, and he told the Soviets that uh, uh, if, if they ever do something like that again, uh, it would be the end of the Soviet Union immediately. Because at that point, and he pointed it out correctly, is that we have you know 
their flights always encouraging, uh, encroaching upon the U.S. shores over D.C. and so forth. We don't shoot them down. And this was a passenger plane, and the Soviets were trying the typical propaganda. No, it was on a spy mission. Uh, but Nixon kind of like basically told the Soviets, you really screwed up on this one. It's just fascinating to watch this whole period in his thinking on world affairs because he is evolving, uh, and he is, as I say, in some ways moving to the right. Um, you know, Reagan is almost kind of steadfast. Um, if you watch Reagan's comments on the Soviet Union, um, you know, as, a, as as governor or as a private citizen in the late 1970s, they're pretty similar to what Reagan was saying. In the 1980s, and and Nixon's are similar as well, but there was a little more doubt uh, from Nixon about uh, who it was we were dealing with uh, with the Soviet Union. I mean, this is he, he becomes more and more convinced that uh, we we need to be tougher with them, and um, and of course a lot of things going back to the Carter years, a lot of things that happened uh, in the Carter years. I mean, you had the invasion of Afghanistan for one. I mean, he. Uh, certainly saw the aggressiveness of the Soviets in the face of the weakness of the Carter administration and uh, began to kind of see them in a darker light. And I think, um, as I say, I mean, he's he's there in the late 1980s. He meets with Gorbachev. He's giving advice and counsel to Reagan and senior staff, um, and I think a lot of it was very good advice and very helpful advice, but uh, it is interesting to me that he breaks with Reagan in 87 publicly uh, over the INF Treaty because he thinks Reagan gave up too much. So he's he's uh, he's kind of gotten religion a little bit on the Soviets in the 1980s. And again, it's not that he was ever naive about them. Far from it. He just had decided that tactically, um, perhaps because of the Carter years, that that a stronger hand was going to be needed in the 80s and. Um, whether it was SDI or the Reagan military defense buildup, I mean, these were things that, I mean, he had written about and called for and and championed and and he supported it. And um, you know, historians can debate what exactly led to the end of the Cold War, but but certainly a lot of people think that those those were all important elements. And so that's all all a part of the history of that period, and that's all all a part of the story as well. It is a very, very fascinating book, and there's so much more to talk about in there because there is even a little bit of an imp, a little bit of a rebel in Richard Nixon uh, because he went and made arrangements to go to China without fully briefing the White House on that one. And then there was the situation with the uh, funeral of Anwar Sadat where he kind of like ducked everyone and went on his own little world tour. There's so much to learn about in this book. And it brings back, you know, the history that I lived. And um, what I found also fascinating when you write about Nixon and his stance on uh, the Soviet Union, I got to say, I'm married to a man from uh, Latvia. His family had been uh, exiled uh, after World War II, and he was born in displaced persons camp. So it was, that was a situation we followed very closely with the start, with the calling out of bring down this wall until the first of the Baltic states uh, found freedom, which happened to have been Latvia, which did that before Lithuania and Estonia back in, uh, I believe it was 90. And I had the pleasure of meeting the Latvian president too. Um, so you know, a lot of this brought back history to me that I had lived through. 
It's, again, a very fascinating book, which is titled After the Fall, The Remarkable Comeback of Richard Nixon. And uh, I highly recommend, you know, anyone that's got a school-age kid, a teenage kid out there should read this book and really learn, you know, what the history is not being taught in school. It's not being told about these people. Well, it's as you say, it's a fascinating period of American history. It's the, in many ways the triumph of 40 years of American foreign policy and the Cold War, and Nixon had been a part of it almost from the beginning uh, in one way or another. And he was there at the end and, and as I say, played a, maybe a bigger role than we've ever realized, uh, particularly in the 80s with, with Ronald Reagan. So it's a fascinating story, and, and uh, I enjoyed researching it and writing it, and I hope people enjoy reading it. Well, you can tell that you did enjoy researching it, and some of the names that come up in the um, throughout the book, I said, "Oh, really? I forgot that so and so was uh, part of the Nixon story." Yeah. Like Diane Sawyer, I'm like, of all people, oh, yeah. Diane Sawyer and Richard Nixon. Yeah, I can see Monica Crowley easily, but the Diane Sawyer sure. <laughs> names that popped out. And I said, Holy cow! I didn't know the connection there. But it's a great book, Casey, and uh, good luck with it, especially today, the 45th anniversary of the resignation of Richard Nixon. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it, and I appreciate it very much. And people can find you at KCSPipe.com. God bless for the hard work you do, sir. Thank you very much. Take care, All Casey. All right. Uh, check it out. Casey Pipes, check it out, KCSPipes.com, and not just the book on Nixon, The Remarkable Comeback of Richard Epps and Nixon, but the other books he wrote. I um, want to welcome onto the show, always fun to talk with this guy, because you never know what's going to come out of his mouth, which is why I love him so much. So, Curtis, one CS to the other CS, welcome back, C.S. Walker, the NSA ex-book. <laughs> Thank you, Annie. That's that's a great intro. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, my mouth is a dangerous weapon, and it's usually that it gets me into a dangerous situation. But listen, I'm glad you're doing much better. I'm glad to hear your voice. We need you. CS, what's up, my namesake? Hey, you got it. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> well, you know when you. Said you would come on the show, and I had got your email. Matter of fact, the first one you really threw me because I'm looking at the email and I'm looking at the website it came from. I'm going, why does this name ring a bell? And of course, you know, see, guys, I've been doing this. I'm going into my tenth year. I can't tell you how many people I've had on the show and interviewed. I'm going, this rings a bell. Who is this guy? And you really made me, you know, do my homework. And I go, I I know this guy's important. Who the heck is he? And when I finally realized I had that head slap boing moment, I'm going, oh, my goodness. <laughs> you have to get you back. And lo and behold, I opened up I am, just 24 hours later, and you are here. I am so hurt. You forgot all about me. <laughs> I thought I meant more to you than that. I'm crushed. I'm devastated. We'll we'll book you the next five shows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, listen, Annie. I mean, I've got so much so much information in my skull, and sometimes, you know, I don't mind doing a memory dump. You know, I will be more than happy to always come onto your program and just do this massive memory dump. But the problem with me is that 
it's like if I get rid of if I do a memory dump of like let's say two or three things, then me being the idiot that I am, I turn around and I consume information from five other subjects. And when I tell you I consume the information, oh no no, I do a background check on that, and then I go deeper. You know, for any information that I find there, I go even deeper. So I mean, I may go back with information so far back, you know, that things that happened maybe 10 years ago that led up to this situation today. So like the whole thing with the problems that we're having with China. Well, I'm pretty sure that if Richard Nixon would have actually looked forward into the future and seen all the problems we're having with China today, he probably would have said, you know what? Mm, Yeah, let's just keep that door closed because – Honestly, the reason why, and this is my personal opinion from all the studies I've done, Richard Nixon went to China, opened trade with China in order to really annoy the hell out of the Soviet Union. So, But if yeah, he would have yeah. foreseen the problems we're having today, he probably would have said, hold on, we're going to keep that door shut. <laughs> no, he, he used China as a bargaining tool against the Soviets. He deliberately wanted to put a wedge between the two of them, because you got to remember, he was also part of the World War II uh, and the Korean War. You know, people forget he served mm-hmm. in the Navy during World War II. But if you can go even further back with his qualms with the Soviet Union, um, he was part of the Pumpkin Patch Papers, going back to Whitaker Chambers. Very few people do not realize that. And he knew about the Soviets spying on us long before we had Trump with Russiagate. Yeah, we won't even get into Russiagate because, I mean, the hypocrisy of the American government of how dare, you know, the Russians use Twitter and Facebook to meddle in our election like, ooh, big threat. (laughs) But, I mean, but the fact remains is that the United States did it to the Russians. During the Obama administration, they did it to the Macedonians. They did it to the English with Brexit. They did it to the Israelis. I mean, we've been meddling in other people's elections and private affairs since Theodore Roosevelt. So who the hell are we to feign this this anger, this outrage of, they meddled in our election? Duh. (laughs) Eventually it was going to happen. Especially Israel. Especially Israel. Yeah, Obama did not like Israel. You know, I mean, but to me, it's like, don't, if you're going to meddle in other countries' elections, then don't get upset when it's done to you. That's like, I'm going to punch you in the throat, but you hit me upside the head with a two-by-four. Why should I be upset? I did it to you Mm -hmm. first. Now, wasn't wasn't it Obama who started a pact and then traveled to Israel to deliberately campaign against, openly campaign against Netanyahu. Talk about meddling. This is a former president actively participating in another country's politics. So don't tell me about Russiagate. Well, you know what? I mean, let's not even talk about meddling in another nation's elections. The United States has a tendency of meddling in the elections of the United States. Now, I'm sure some of your listeners are going... How is that possible? Well, that's real easy. When Teddy Kennedy sent his right-hand man, Mr. Tunney, to the Soviet Union to speak with Yuri Andropov and asking Yuri Andropov to meddle in the American election against Ronald Reagan. So Mm -hmm. we meddle in our own elections. 
and you know, there are people who are saying, that's a conspiracy theory. That never happened. Really? That's why I have the documented proof? Seriously? The documented proof is out there. I don't even have the original. I have a copy of the original. So don't sit there and tell me that, no, that Teddy Kennedy never did that. I mean, when he passed away, everybody was like, oh, he was such a good man. And I'm sitting there watching news. I'm like, <laughs> what Teddy Kennedy are you talking yeah. about? Yeah, Mary I got Joe to see that Kennedy? document as well. Yeah, I know that document exists. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, Mary- the reporter himself was British. He wasn't even Russian or anything. He was a British reporter. And this is at the end when communism fell and the Russians opened the doors to basically information gathering from news agencies. They said, oh, you want to know about our past? It's all right in there. Walk right on in. And nobody pointed yeah. into it. This guy was digging and digging and digging and digging. He was looking for everything he could possibly get his hands on. And then he accidentally came across this one document. So, really? No. Teddy Kennedy was, was garbage. He was a lousy human yeah, being. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and if you wanted any secret on the United States government, just talk to a New York Times reporter. Hey, come on. Oh, they exactly. were lining up. They were lighting up for the Russians to pay them. I mean, it was an extra few bucks in the bank account. Forget about that townhouse down in Soho. You'll be down on, on Fifth Avenue, baby. Just, just no. hook up with the well, New York I mean, Times that, that, and your local Soviet spy. Oh, why, you don't even have to do that. All you have to do is if you're working at the New York Times or CNN or another news agency, well, you know what? Just have an affair with an FBI agent because that's all of a sudden blowing <laughs> up about all these reporters sleeping with FBI agents. And I'm like, <laughs> thank God I was NSA. Nobody liked us. Nobody thought about us. <laughs> the most powerful, the largest, most powerful intelligence organization in this country, and nobody liked us or knew about us. And I liked it that way. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, you know, we've had the previous administration that dismantled our intelligence services so badly we no longer have the assets we need on the ground to do what we need to do. You know, I'm hearing that I mentioned this to the email I sent you about the resurgence of ISIS in Syria. If we had intelligence assets on the ground, we would not see ISIS resurging. Well, see, here's here's where I kind of differ with you slightly. We did have we do have the intelligence, or excuse me, past tense. We did have the intelligence assets on the ground. In fact, our greatest intelligence asset was idiots like me with the NSA. And why? Because of our, not just our abilities to collect intelligence, but many of us have also been cross-trained in other realms of the intelligence world, but also our ability to use um, communication systems, how to manipulate and use communication systems. Now, at one point in time, don't forget, don't forget, the entire war in Iraq and Syria was being monitored in Qatar by Central Command. And it was during the Obama administration when he was saying, oh, yeah, we, we don't have to worry about ISIL, because he was calling them ISIL at the time. Uh, they're the JV team. Yeah, that's right. They are the JV team. Uh, my intelligence sources tell me they are no threat. Come to find out that the intelligence sources that he was talking about, in particular, Army Intelligence and the NSA, they were taking the analysts were taking the data, handing it over to their bosses, and their bosses were rewriting the intelligence. 
to make it look like ISIS was not a threat, that ISIS was insignificant. And the reason why this scandal broke out was because, get ready for this one, the president doesn't like bad news. Really? Mm -hmm. The president (laughs) does not like bad news. Uh, By that point in time, I had already left the agency. I had retired, and my response to that was, and this is why I always wanted to meet him and punch him in the throat, because I really (laughs) never liked him. He was a threat to – I mean, when you – and then he he sits there, and then bubblehead Hillary turns around and says, 17 intelligence agencies say that Russia meddled. Really? So why does the Department of Energy have anything to do with possible Russian meddling? Because, yes, ladies and gentlemen, the Department of Energy does have an intelligence program. And because they are the ones that basically are the caretakers of our nuclear weapons arsenal. Don't forget, nuclear power can be turned into a weapon called a nuclear missile. Now, why, do they, why does Coast Guard intelligence have anything to do whether the Russians meddled or not? Why does Navy intelligence have any, any dog in the fight? They don't. So when she was saying that, both of them were saying 17 intelligence agencies, no. It was the FBI, the CIA, the ODNI, Office of the Defense, uh, Defense Intelligence Agency, and the NSA. But the NSA, the NSA says something different. And if any of you disagree with me, just go back and take a look. Comey, Clapper, and Brennan said, yes, yes, Russia interfered in our election. The NSA said, it's possible. Big difference. Big, huge difference. One is a yes, yes, yes. The other one is, eh, maybe. But everybody mm-hmm. kept saying the 17 agencies when it was really one. One agency said that, and the other two fell in lockstep, and the only dissension amongst that group was the NSA. And I'm very proud to say my agency, because the fact is that, <laughs> you know, when they say that the Russians meddled with us in cyber, in a cyber manner, okay, this is, this is true. This is true. But it's like to say a Aston Martin DB10 and a Yugo are cars. Vastly different. <laughs> vastly different, but they're both cars. Well, hacking into a computer and using Twitter and Facebook is still cyber. There it is. They didn't go into details. They just said cyber. The same way I would say, I have a car. I'm not going to tell you it's a Yugo. I'll make you think it's an Aston Martin. You know, it, it's funny because you're coming out of the mouth of Hillary Clinton about meddling in from Russia, meddling from China. Yeah, she is the one to talk because if anyone goes back to when she ran for Senate in New York State, there was this scandal coming out of Chinatown in Manhattan, how these families that barely had $100 in the bank were making these huge donations to her campaign. But lo and behold, this money was being funneled through, hmm, these uh, handlers from China 
uh, suddenly this um, money coming from China through these you know, poor families in Chinatown into her Senate campaign and how that rolled over into her presidential campaign and her husband's presidential campaign. And, oh, wait a minute, didn't they have connections through Uranium One? And what was that name of her, her butt boy that uh, his brother also has connections through there? Um, it, it's an incestuous circle here when you mention the Clinton. Well, well, first of all, let's make one thing perfectly clear. Ladies and gentlemen, doing knockoff purses and watches is not that lucrative in Chinatown. Let me make that perfectly clear, okay? <laughs> Most people can say, this is not a coach bag because it says couch. This is not a Rolex because it says Rolodex. So, yeah, no, I'm sorry, folks. Yeah, knockoff industry in Chinatown is not that lucrative in order for them to give that much money to the Clinton campaign. Now, as far as Uranium One is concerned, you know what? I have been trying to blow the whistle on this, and nobody, nobody will listen. Nobody wants to hear how easy it was for Uranium One to go through because it's re- this is how easy it was. Let's say C.S. Bennett, Annie, and I are part of a little commission, a tiny little commission, no big deal. And in order for any one of our ideas to go through, we have to bring it to the commission. And we talk about it, and we decide whether to investigate, look deeper into it, and then send it on up to a higher authority. Well, the way, you re- the way that Cepheus the way they worked, and this is how Uranium One got through. Hey, Annie, CS, I got something here. This is really cool, and it will help the, it'll help the country, and this corporation is very, quote-unquote, American-friendly. Well, then Annie and CS look at me, and they go, okay, let's take a look at it. Oh, there's no need. I already did the background research, and it's good to go. Okay, send it to the boss. That's how Uranium One got through. That's it. The State Department brought the, brought the Uranium One proposal to Scythius. They said that they had already conducted the background research and the background history on Uranium One and that it was good to go. It was clear. That's when it went straight to President Barack Obama. Again, I have documentation to prove that what I'm saying is 100% true. That's you know, what it's funny, went yes, it could, Well, before, before Admiral Lyons passed away, he was on the show, and God bless, I love this guy. I met him uh, when he was at the South Carolina Tea Party Coalition Convention. What a doll he is. Uh, but he, on the show, broke down the entire relationship of Uranium One, the Clintons, and... Um, Good Lord, I can see his face, and I can't, I can't think of his name. Uh, I called him Clinton's butt boy, but he was involved with Pizzagate, and his brother was an executive with one of the Russian Podesta. companies. Uh, thank you. Yes, Podesta. Yeah, Podesta, whatever. You, you said it right. Yeah. Um, he, yeah. he broke down the entire relationship and how it was so circumvented, you know, through Iran, through the Middle East, back up into Russia, through the Clintons, and, as you said, that little – Covey Warren of State Department officials that just rubber stamped it, which meant it was basically Podesta and Clinton that rubber stamped everything, put it on Obama's desk. 
and he broke it down mm-hmm. so marvelously. I had to take a legal pad and draw myself it all out in a graph. And if you saw the arrows and everything, I it is crazy. And it doesn't take a brain surgeon to realize that was something stank, and it still stinks. Well, God, yeah. Now, C.S., you were going to ask me something? Yes, I was. Um, you mentioned earlier that our government interferes with our own elections, or at least certain people in government, and we all know that. But um, mm-hmm. what about our private lives? Um, like, you don't you don't hear much about the Patriot Act, and at one time that's all we were hearing, the Patriot Act. Um, what's going on with that, and are they still trying to um, – get too involved in our, our privacy. If you can speak on that sub- subject. <laughs> uh, mm. I'm Put it this way. Do you I, think I, that I, was a good, do you think that was a good, legis- a piece of legislation, the Patriot Act? The Patriot Act went a little bit too far in certain areas, but what really annoyed me about the Patriot Act is the one human being that actually said anything about it uh, was a member of the Senate, and he was from Wisconsin. And, in fact, he was the same guy that was uh, a part of Barney Frank's committee on uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and he was the only one that stepped forward and said, no, uh, President Bush didn't mess up this whole thing with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Our commission did. We kept lying to him, saying that it was in the green. It, you know, it's in the black. It's in the black. It's in the black. And that's when this whole, that whole disaster happened with uh, the market crash because of Freddie Mae and Fannie and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Um, and he was the only only politician to step forward and admit to it. And then long not long after that, his career was destroyed in federal politics. But as far as the uh, you know you know the, the the whole deal was that there were certain aspects that went just a little bit too far, but everybody jumped on board because it was popular. It was okay. And even John Kerry said, I voted against it after I voted for it. Okay, yeah, great. Way to go, Skippy. Uh, You're really not that brilliant. Swear to God, he did say that. I voted against it after I voted for it. And, you know, it's like in hushed tones, you heard heard him saying, oh, yeah. But as far as the privacy of the American citizen is concerned, let me tell you one thing right now. I'm not going to go into any detail, but I'll say this much. And and the best thing about getting caught is you learn how not to get caught. And I'll leave it at that. Yeah, it's funny because I had sent you the email about – Amazon, and I, I I nearly fell out of my Archie Bunker chair when I saw that you know you've got different government entities agencies that want to take their data uh, because it's taking up too much space in the government facilities and upload it to the cloud. Oh. Now the cloud is basically run by Amazon. It's another company with a series of servers, and they're just storing your mm-hmm. data for you. But then again, you've got the Alexis. Uh, you've got Siri uh, that are doing all these little data collections on individuals. And lo and behold, we're finding out now that there are members of Amazon that are listening to you uh, from you cursing out your spouse to listening to you have sex. 
I wonder why you'd worry about your own personal data. See, okay, I'm about to say something disturbing, but disturbing to most people. I find it hilarious. I don't have a Siri, but if I did, if I did, at least once a week, at least once a week, I would have a little tape recorder or a little digital recorder, and I would make it sound like I was trying to romance a woman and just say, oh, baby, you're smoking hot, and then play the sounds of a pig squealing just to annoy Amazon, just to irritate, or a donkey, just just to flip out the people at Amazon. That's it, just to flip them out. Now, to many people right now, they're saying, that's sick, dude. But think about it, the reaction on the other end, that's funny. Sick, but yeah, funny. Yeah, but, it's I funny mean, because when... Well, I was going to say that when I had gone to the inauguration of Trump, and we were staying about three, four blocks behind the Capitol, a beautiful, beautiful spot that we had. I mean, the way the lights lit up on it and the street we were on was just so great. Uh, but the couple that had the apartment that we had rented for the inauguration, they had one of these Alexis or series or whatever it was, devices. And you saw the little light was on, and we joked with each other saying, you be careful what you say because you don't know what's listening. And we found out, you know, basically it's true because even though you think the device isn't listening, it still is. But it's not just the Siri devices. It's your TV. It's your washing machine. It's yeah. your stove. If you've got a smart device, and I love the commercials about, do you know what's in your refrigerator? And you talk to the refrigerator, it tells you what's in there. And when I saw that commercial, I flashed back. And having read Obamacare, both the House and the Senate bill, I flash back to those sections of the Obamacare bills where it allowed government agents to come into your home and determine what's in your covers and your refrigerator to determine if you are eating the right things. And I'm going, and you think government isn't watching you? Well, you know what? I mean, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I can't stand conspiracy theorists because they take, they take away from the truth. They take away from the facts the concrete evidence. They take away from that, and then they build these elaborate stories. But here's one concrete fact, that Amazon.com has hired former technicians that worked at the NSA. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, yeah, they, they, I mean, uh, I don't have a Siri. My TV doesn't have a camera or any kind of a listening device. And I, all my TVs. My washing machine's in the basement where I hardly go down there anyway. So, except to wash clothes, of course, or to work out. But other than that, no. No. I mean, my computer, no. I mean, I've got my computers well set up where if anybody tries to invade my computer, it basically shuts everything down, disconnects me from the Internet, and they no longer have access. And my cell phone, I mean, my mobile my mobile has, like, an antivirus intrusion system. It has a, uh, another program where it lets me know if somebody's trying to get into my phone. I mean, I've, I, I try to protect myself, but can I protect myself against everything? No. But no. there's an old saying, and I'm not saying this to anybody. It's just the saying. And that old saying goes, keep it simple, stupid. Well, guess what? Yep. The higher tech we go, the more access you give people. That's yeah. true. Hey, K-I-S-S. Keep it simple, stupid. Yep. Go ahead, Curtis. Yeah. Sound like you. 
sound like you got a, a little fed up like Gene Hackman had in um, that movie, Enemy of the State. How close to reality oh, yeah. are movies like <laughs> Blow that? Blow up your house. Go ahead. But save the cat. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if you ever, I never know, I don't know if you ever um, watched The Firm, too, with um, Tom Cruise, where they were being monitored. He didn't know. No, any movie that comes out that says, starring Tom Cruise, oh, guess what movie I'm not watching. I just don't like the guy. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. When you compare making a movie to going into combat, I want to beat you with a pool stick. Oh, I want to beat you senseless with a pool stick. I am done with you. You're, yes, in combat, in combat, there's somebody out there in a big chair saying, cut. Oh, and we all stop and we're like, oh, hey, so so tell me, Muhammad. Oh, yes, what is it? See, yes, how you doing? I'm like, I'm doing good, man. How's the wife and kids? Oh, they're doing great, fantastic. Okay, now in this scene, no, there's no such thing like that in combat. No, you don't compare combat with making a movie. Sorry, I got done with him. Now, as far as Enemy of the State, <sighs> and I'm talking about the technology, um, the technology um, highlighted. Don't yeah. forget, in Enemy of the State, they were talking about facial recognition. Now, this was before mm-hmm. facial recognition became so huge. We had facial recognition decades before it hit the, the mainstream civilian world. So the facial recognition aspect in that movie is, astru- is actually true. Now, there are certain things that go a little bit beyond the limits. You know, it's like, really, dude? Did y'all have to push it that far? That's nonsense. But don't forget one thing. Today's nonsense is tomorrow's possibility. So, you know what? I mean, I mean, right now in front of me, I've got four computers. I have four computers in front of me right now. Every single one of them are protected, but they're not hooked up into each other. Each one has a different purpose. And I have one computer where if they try to track it, they're going to swear to God right now I'm in Switzerland. But in 20 minutes from now, <laughs> they will swear that I am in Bosnia. And in 20 minutes after that, they'll swear I'm in Brazil. So, yeah, I'm sorry, folks. No, I, that's the one computer I do for my in-depth research. Everything else, movies, the book, um, watching sports, but they're all still protected as well. I need you to come to my house. <laughs> I really need you to come to pay me a visit. I've got uh, four computers right now. One is down because it needs a new fan. Uh and I had at one point had them networked. They no longer are networked together. Uh, so, you know, if one crashes, I still got, you know, I, another one I can use. Uh, just a matter of transferring data from one to the other. But, yeah, it, it, it is amazing how vulnerable we are with the new gadgets we have. You know, just think back uh, just a mere handful of years ago, you know, your cell phone was this big, clunky thing. I mean, when I was a cop, the cell phones didn't have uh, cameras on them and now everything is so compact you've got a miniature computer in your cell phone i mean my mom has no, a no, no. laptop and yeah no 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 <laughs> hold on i heard cs phone. i heard cs say the brick i go back even further than that i remember when civilian oh, cell phones were the size of a car because they were a car remember that yeah these things were oh, huge. Yeah. i mean the TV show the, the only, yeah, Exactly. The only thing that can power this phone, because it just took so much energy to operate, was the actual power of a running car. 
And wow. that's, yeah. But, I mean, my cell phone itself, right now, if somebody kicked in the door and said, you were speaking to C.S. Walker. Yes, I was. Why was he calling you from uh, from Argentina? He's in Argentina. No, I'm not in Argentina. Sorry, guys, I'm not in Argentina or wherever the hell. <laughs> my phone is cycling through right now. I'm not stupid. I mean, I make my phone calls, and if they try to track my phone, it's going to be someplace where I'm not. And then they're going to tra- track it from that point, and that's, again, I'm not there either. They're going to go to every single point, and, oh, my God, are they going to get some air mileage out of that. Oh, they are going to get some <laughs> serious frequent flyer mileage trying to track me down. But I am in the one place where it's like, really? Yeah, duh. Surprise. Right in your backyard. Well, you know, it's, you know, you know it, it's it's funny because you know uh, I have I have the uh, portable phones in my house, but I do have one solid landline. And believe it or not, if you looked at it, it was one of those that you had to pick the receiver to hold it to one ear and your mouth to this little microphone on the phone box. <laughs> so oh I yeah, no, 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 need... I miss I miss rotary <laughs> dialing. I really I miss rotary because rotary dialing made us smarter. Ask me how. Yes. Did you ever did you ever see the video? It's up on YouTube. It's these two kids, I think they're about 16, 17 years old, trying to figure out how to work a rotary phone. And it is hysterical. Um, my, my former uh, co-host, I was talking about, you know, telephones, and I says, a rotary dial phone. He goes, what's a rotary dial phone? And as you put your finger in it, you spin uh, the dot, and he had never seen or heard of one. <laughs> God forbid they had to have um, a party line. You, you know, I mean, rotary phones made us more intelligent because we had to memorize the numbers. We couldn't just look for a name, push the button, and it went through. We had to memorize mm-hmm. phone numbers in order to make those calls. I mean, yes, we would have a phone book next to us. We would travel around with small little phone books in our in our back pockets, but the fact is that it was an effort to make a phone call, but it still made us more intelligent because we we were memorizing phone numbers. Nowadays, I mean, what are the kids memorizing nowadays? Oh, they're trying to memorize the cheat codes so they can beat, you know, uh, what is it now, Fortnite, so they can beat Fortnite and advance much quicker and so on and so forth. So, I mean... Yeah, nowadays it's mobile phones have been one of the tools as convenient as they are. Mobiles have helped us become dumber. And Absolutely. that's why I love to read because I want to not get dumber. But I mean, you, I mean, you tell me when we had rotary phones, how many phone numbers did you have to memorize? Oh, a lot. A heck of a lot. Exactly. A heck of a lot. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, you know, when I, I am old. Well, <laughs> but when I, I had my, my first business back in 19 from, from the year, um, you had to remember phone numbers. You know, you went to call a client and you had a flight ready for them. And it's like you get it now or an hour from now, that flight seat will be gone. If you didn't remember the phone number or had the ability to find it fast, yeah, you, know, you just lost yourself a client. And if you had a, like for us, we had five different phone numbers coming into the business. One of them being a toll-free number. And good, how much you want to bet? There's probably not very many listeners out there that know what the heck a toll-free number is. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's just like I said before, I mean, we had to remember all these numbers, or if not, we had small phone books. Or if in a business, you had the roll the Rolodex. And right now, people go, mm-hmm. what's a Rolodex? Really? <laughs> I am so old. But anyway, uh, but uh, we just had to memorize numbers. I mean, but at the agency, we couldn't write anything down. Nothing could leave that building with pens of paper unless I had my certain certification that said that I was allowed to transport certain types of documents. And I did have that. I did have that. In fact, I first time they gave it to me, I, it really annoyed the hell out of me. And then next thing you know, they're like, hey, you're pretty good at this, won't you? We're going to make you uh, keep it. I'm like, you suck. And uh, <laughs> I had to carry documents with me, which translation if you're cl- carrying classified documents outside of a classified facility, translation, what does that mean? You're a target. They mm-hmm. might shoot you. Oh. They might kill you. Yeah. They might want to take those documents, especially when you work in Washington, D.C., which is the home. Washington, D.C. has more spies than you can shake a stick at. And, you know, I mean, you are carrying classified documents. We will kill you for the documents. So, yeah, you become a target. There's a certain MOS, you know, military occupational specialty in the United States Air Force. That is their sole job to do that. They are couriers. That is it. That is their one and only job. And it is a dangerous job. Me, I wasn't a a courier, but whenever I had to do things, I had to take doc. I was like their mailman. Oh, since you're going there anyway, here you go. Take this with you. And mm-hmm. I look at him like, you're a jerk. I hate you. I was looking forward to just a relaxing flight to wherever I was going. But no, now I've got to pay attention to everything and everyone. You're a bastard. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you remember the uh, Walker's Spy case. I was on the yes, USS Limits at that time with um, his son, um, John Walker's son, Michael Walker. Yeah, and this guy was working for the Soviets and um, taking pictures and things on a little one of those spy cameras. And that yeah. incident changed the way we operated entirely after that. You know, it was amazing. Yeah, compartmentalization. The compartmentalization. Uh, the thing about John Walker, because I, I even here's my thing. I mean, we we have been when in the agency we were actually emphasized to learn about successful spies because part of our job was also to catch spies and you know i mean i read both his books the one that was written about him and the one that he was actually involved in writing and john walker his son and his brother all three of them were involved in this because after john walker had retired he before he retired, he and his brother were doing this, but he was the ringleader. And then when he retired, he convinced his son to join the Navy, and then he convinced his son to be a submariner, and then he convinced his son to bring him more information so the money train would continue to roll in. And John Walker, uh, his big thing is, I think he was one of the first snowflakes. I sincerely think he was one of the first snowflakes ever because he said, this isn't fair. Civilians are making so much money with my security clearance, but nobody will hire me 
because all I do is, you know, he was signals intelligence. He he was dealt with crypto, and he did basically what I did, but except he did it for the Navy and I did it for the NSA. And he he just thought it was unfair that he couldn't make more money, and he decided to sell it off to the Navy. I mean, to the the Russians. And I I find I find demented people fascinating because it gives me a peek into their minds and basically tells me, you know, like, oh, well, if I start thinking like this, I'm a bad person. I better not do that. Uh, but to me, it's just fascinating peeking into those minds. And he, he destroyed his entire family. His wife became an alcoholic because she knew what he was doing, and she couldn't stop him. But she was the one that turned him in. She was the one that turned her son in and her brother-in-law. She turned all three of them in because she just couldn't take it anymore. And, I think and he was trying to recruit his daughter. Yeah, and there was once she fact, found out that went, um, the daughter was being recruited, that that was the last straw for her. Uh, there were a few instances that happened in the Navy at that time because of John Walker giving the the crypto information to the Russians and. Uh, I think I forgot what well, I forgot what the incidences were, but they were not very nice at all. And I can't for the life of me, I can't remember what those incidences were. But John Walker, I mean, when you're in signals intelligence, as far as the Navy is concerned, that is a huge burden because you're basically deciphering all the information about where every ship in every fleet is located. That is codes and everything, everything, everything under the sun, you know, and another aspect of signals intelligence, some of it is also code breaking when you're breaking codes, but that's more for like the insides, the inside guys, the huge brains of signals intelligence, mathematicians, yeah, oh dude, those guys are geniuses, they scare me. But uh, you know the high speed the high speed bullet catchers like me yeah no just, uh, go catch a bad guy if he gets shot yeah, we got a replacement just well you know you, whatever, you mentioned dude. you know uh, you, you mentioned the signal signal core and you know knowing where every single vessel is in the world at any time I'm going to take you down a little bit of a different path and this is something else I think I, I mentioned possibly in the email I sent you how is it that Iran is able to capture these tankers so easily. Are, are, are these captains just throwing their hands up in the air and saying, we give up? I mean, we had the captains fighting the Somali pirates. Why aren't they fighting the Iranians in international water? Well, first of all, these ships are basically unarmed. And this is going to sound weird to you guys, but the Iranians are doing something that the Nazis did. The Nazis had the blitzkrieg. They go in fast and hard. That's what the Iranians do with their small boats. They go in fast and hard, surround the boat, draw panic, helicopter comes in, Iranian soldiers board the, board the ship and take it over. And these guys, like I said, are, are, they are unarmed. But here's what's really, really funny. There is a country right now if you take a look at a map of Iran, in fact, uh, Straits of Hormuz, um, there is a country that 
can make a killing, a killing, by building a canal. And you would bypass the entire Strait of Hormuz, and that country is called Dubai. That's all you got. All you got to do is build a canal that goes right through the Persian Gulf, past, past the Straits of Hormuz. Because the Straits of Hormuz, if you're going down the Straits of Hormuz, and let's say you're going towards Kuwait, okay, first there's that turn that you got to go north, then you go around this hump, and then you go south, and then you make another turn, and you go straight towards Kuwait, the Kuwait City in Kuwait. Well, in Dubai, if they were to build a canal, that hump that is the Straits of Hormuz would be completely bypassed. Iran would have nothing. Well, well, now that brings me up to another question, because this is something else I was thinking about, um, because Trump seems to feel that Iran in the near future may, the mullahs and the uh, Republican Guard may fall soon. Uh, the, the people are getting pissed off and fed up. Why have we not then partnered with Dubai? And Dubai is known for building these magnificent towers on these islands and building these islands for tourists and everything else. Why haven't we partnered with Dubai and say, hey, listen, we'll help you build the canal. We'll help you police the canal to make sure it stays safe. You keep the profits, just allow our ships to go through unmolested. And we can bring down Iran overnight. Why aren't we doing that? Don't know. In fact, there's another country that is, and if Dubai says no, well, guess what? There's another country that is literally in the Straits of Hormuz, and it's called Musandam. M-U-S-A-N-D-A-M. Look up the location. It's more narrow than Dubai. So you can build a canal right through there, and it would drive the Iranians crazy. But the only problem is that that country is so small that the Iranians would actually try to invade it. And it blows my mind away because, I mean, they feel that they can do whatever they want. And we all know that they can't. In fact, it's called Oman. That's the name of the country, Oman. And why is my map going bananas? There it is. And if you go to Oman, this country is so small, so tiny, and it looks like it cannot defend itself. But a canal between those two countries would be perfect to drive the Iranians that crap crazy and it would be a joy to watch that watching you know the the supreme leader just just watch him watch his beard just tingle with rage I would love that I I would make my day I don't know about you guys (laughs) but make my day complete (laughs) watch him watch him just curse America's the day America because they're advertising Dubai is advertising heavily for tourism to their country and they've got they're, they're sending Boku bucks into tourism 
And one way to get it is you just now have, hey, have, how about a Mediterranean or, you know, a, a, a cruise of the, the area and guarantee tourism to your country and a steady income. You don't, you, they don't have oil income. They're relying on tourism income. Hey, this is one way to win a large portion of the Middle East back. I'm telling, right now, I'm, I'll be honest with you, I mean, but the Middle East, there's a lot going on in the Middle East right now, and a lot of it is very surprising. And I cover a lot of some of that stuff on my podcast, um, where they, the Saudis and the Israelis are working together. But here's the here's here's the shocker, it's not just the Saudis. There are other Middle Eastern countries that are Muslim that are now working, cooperating with Israel. So all I got to say to the Iranian government is thank you. Thank you for bringing the Middle East close together in peace against you. Thank you for for forcing these people together and realizing, you know what, we got more in common than we realize. And it's working. Now, the only problem is, of course, you know, when you have Hezbollah, Hamas, you know, where they're doing what they can. But even the Saudis are now helping Israel with that. Because for the longest, Hamas kept building the schools and the homes for the poor people, saying, you know, oh, you know, like the Middle Eastern version of Democrats. Oh, look, we're on your side. We love you. You're poor. We're here for you, you know. But then in Saudi Arabia, the big capitalist monster that it is, stepped into the picture and said, well, guess what? We're going to build a whole bunch of houses for displaced Palestinians. We're going to repair homes for those that, that can be repaired. And, oh, yeah, by the way, we're also going to build three schools. But here's the catch. Those schools are not going to be government-affiliated. They're going to be three independent schools. So that's basically, you know, chucking the bird at Hamas. So even the Saudis are helping Israel when it comes to dealing with Hamas in a political manner. And, again, thank you, Iran, for being a pack of jerks and bringing the Middle East closer together. CF. Wow. Yes, What is What is... What is your position or thoughts on um, Rocket Man over in North Korea? Is he really a threat to um, stability over there, as we claim, or what? Okay. We've all heard of the term saber-rattling, okay? Now, he's testing. They're launching these rockets for testing, correct? But while he's launching these rockets, there's one thing we have not, and I repeat, have not heard on the news lately what one thing is he not testing that he used to test that made the entire world go uh oh something's wrong here long range nope nuclear testing not long range oh okay he's not detonating anything nothing is being detonated now with the systems that we have in place right now monitoring north korea rocket man can burp or fart and it will register on some kind of a scale and it'll tell us exactly what it was. But nothing has been registered. None of the testing has been, none of the nuclear testing has been going on. It's just been testing of launch systems. That's it. Well, you know what? 
I could put a stink bomb on a missile and launch it. Does that mean that I'm a threat to the planet? No. Or then again, I mean, it, he's, it, to me, this is a sign of saber rattling. Now, the second that I hear that there was a strange or unexplained seismic activity that had occurred in North Korea, as soon as I hear unexplained, now I'm going to get worried. But if he's just launching his toys, let him. If he launches his toys, that means that if he does decide to do nuclear testing, less toys for him to put them in. So that means he's got to spend more resources on building. So if he spends more resources, he's taking more money away from his people, which puts him in a tighter financial uh, deficit within his own budget because then, I mean, see, how, see where I'm going with this? Spend more money, have less money, oh, yeah. need more help. And so to, the way I see it, let him launch his toys. Have fun. Have fun with it. Go to town. Just don't do any nuclear testing. Now, there has been uh, approaches from South Korea to North Korea uh, trying to ease uh, relations between the two countries and possibly unify the peninsula. Do you think that'll actually happen? Because you've got a president over there is liberal leaning and not exactly friendly to the United States. Uh, liberal leaning people are the only ones I know that if you try to help them, they'll just say, I don't like you. Yeah, but I'm helping you. I understand that, but I don't like you. Do you want me to stop helping you? No. Don't you dare. Okay, but I don't like you. <laughs> there is there. <laughs> there could there will be peace in the peninsula. There will be peace. There's one problem with this though, and that peace will occur well after I'm dead. Because, you know, they turn around and they say, Well, oh, they're socialists or they're communists. Yeah, not really, because to me they're more fascists. I mean, they say that Castro is, is a socialist. No. Cast, Fidel Castro dies. He gives it to his brother. Well, sounds more like a monarchy to me, but okay. But the only way that any kind of peace is going to happen is if there's just mass, mass starvation going on in North Korea or the people revolt. And that's not going to happen because the brainwashing in North Korea is so complete and so well done. That's not going to happen in my lifetime. It's sad to say. I'd love to see it happen in my lifetime. I'd like to be the one to say, you know, I want to be one of those people to say, yes, um, I saw the Berlin Wall go down. I saw communism end. I saw the breakup of the USSR. And I saw... North and South Korea come to a final peace agreement. Um, <clears throat> we may see that final peace agreement if Trump has his way, <clears throat> maybe ending a war that is the longest war in American history because it has not been ended. Matter of fact, uh, my uncle was an orderly in a mass unit during the Korean War, and he's still alive and. Every single day we're losing more and more Korean War veterans and now Vietnam War veterans. <clears throat> it would be nice to let the last few remaining see peace in their lifetime. But, you know, the one thing I do have hope for is is that 
the more South Korea makes an approachment to North Korea, offers them technology and food, North Koreans are beginning to will begin to see just how well the South Koreans have have it, and maybe that mm-hmm. would be enough to help them topple their government. That would be a dream come true. But like I said, I mean, right now President Trump is getting blamed for it not happening so far, and it's like really after how many decades, and you expect it to happen in two years? Wow, you guys ain't that bright. Uh, you know, I mean, he gets blamed for everything. I mean, he's getting blamed for this El Paso shooter. And I read that guy's manifesto, and he has nothing in common with the president. Now, I was just looking at that for the El Paso shooter. That was just up in my hand. <clears throat> and, uh, I'm, you have some I, I got ESPN. On this. I got ESPN. <laughs> I can tell you what's going to happen after it's happened. I'm, I'm holding it up to the camera so people can see. Yet yeah, this is the article I had right in my hand. <laughs> Well, okay, I read the guy's manifesto, and this guy, okay, let me ask you a question. If I told you that there was a very popular person on TV as of lately, and this very popular person was anti-corporation and pro-environment, who do you think I'm talking about? (laughs) Jeez, is the initials AOC ring a bell? You would be wrong. It's the El Paso shooter I'm talking about. I've got the manifesto here. Now, first of all, they're saying that President Trump was an influence on this individual, when it's completely false. The individual that, the individual that was a major influence on this, indivi- of this kid was an author by the name of Renaud Chanot. Now, Renaud Chanot, he wrote the book, uh, The Great Replacement. He wrote that book, and this is the book that this kid read before he went on this shooting spree. Now, this kid turns around, reads the book and everything else, and then he decides he hates corporations. He hate, he literally hates corporations. But how did he... How, now, many people are asking themselves right now, how did he make that connection between corporations and immigrants? Very simple. He saw immigrants as a tool that the corporations were using in order to oppress and depress the American economy and the American people. Um, like, here's one line. Let me see. Uh, he, wrote, he wrote in one line of, both Democrats and Republicans have been failing us for decades. Then he goes on in another line says, the takeover of the United States government by unchecked corporations. Then he goes on in another line and says, many factions within the Republican Party are pro-corporation. Pro-corporation equals pro-immigration. Because he sees that corporations bring in illegal immigrants so they can get paid less money. They get paid less money, the corporations make more money. He sees illegal immigrants as a tool that's being used by corporations against the American people. You know, and... He goes on another line. Remember that both Democrats and Republicans support immigration and work visas. Corporations need to keep replenishing the labor pool for both skilled and unskilled jobs to keep wages down. This kid was anti-immigrant because he was anti-corporation. He saw that he feels that corporations are using immigrants as 
an ignorant tool that they can use to get what they want, which is more money. Now, with that being said, he was also very pro-environment. He Get ready for this one. He even mentioned the book The Lorax. Now, if you're going to sit there and say that Donald Trump is a racist and that he influenced this kid into doing this disgusting, hateful crime, then so is Dr. Seuss. You've got to call Dr. <laughs> Seuss a racist. Because he, he mentioned in, in the book, he, in his manifesto, he mentions the Lorax, how we are, the whole concept of deforestation, the water table, so on and so forth. And as I'm reading his part when it comes to the environment, I'm like, oh, my God, did AOC write this? How'd she get in this? <laughs> this is was everywhere. <laughs> um, well, listen, C.S., do you want to stay with us? Because we've got our next guest in. He's the uh, pup, the teeth in straight, Putnam Commissioner uh, in Florida, uh, Larry Harvey. Would you want to hang around and stay with us? And by the way, tell us where people can find your uh, podcast. Oh, my podcast is currently located on the internet. Oh, you want the address? Okay, uh, that's the Insider Reports with an S. dot com. Uh, plus, you can listen to me every Wednesday from like nine thirty Eastern to ten o'clock on the Rod Eccles Show, where I give him my inside view on stuff. The Insider Reports is more in depth, more what you might call. Stuff from all over the world where I break things down and explain things. And, yeah, I basically, like I, we used to say in the Army, I break it down Barney style so everybody understands it. And I would love to hang around. Okay, great. Well, let's welcome back to our show uh, Putnam County Commissioner Larry Harvey. Good afternoon, Larry. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you doing today? All right. You, you have How's it going, Commissioner? To our, uh, our former... <laughs> NSA is spook C.S. Walker, so he's hanging out on the line with you. You know, Larry, I'm, I'm glad you're here with us today because maybe you can give us an insight on the craziness that we've got coming up from the left when it, it comes to dealing with uh, anything Trump. Uh, you now have protesters outside of Mitch McConnell's house uh, saying he should be stabbed to death uh, because he's nursing a broken arm because he fell. And it broke his arm because of a previous bout of polio left him weak in one leg. It, 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 you have people being doxxed left and right. Heaven forbid you make a donation to the Trump campaign. Um, you're going to be outed. And your name, they're going to follow you to wherever you work, you live. Uh, it, it's crazy out there. It is crazy. It's very decisive right now for some reason. And, you know, um, it's sad to me that we've turned into this kind of a a, a country, if you will. Um, we can't disagree anymore civilly for some reason. And um, I, you know, I, I wasn't I wasn't hip on the last president. Let me say that I, he wasn't the best president I thought. But I never cut him down publicly. I did not do the things that are happening now. But you're right. If you're if you're for Trump, you're automatically guilty of something. And as a as a white male, I feel that I'm even guilty of being alive someday. And I shouldn't feel that way because I'm a I'm a great American. I want to make this country better for all races. 
I want everyone to prosper. And I think that's the American way that we should be living in. But it doesn't feel that way anymore for some reason. And and I uh, wish we could get back to it. Yeah, it's a shame because you've got uh, Joaquin, jo- jo- how you pronounce his name, one of the Castro twins. Uh, one's running for president. The other one is running for idiot of the year. Um, <laughs> shaming. Castro. Uh, so, yeah, Joe Quinn or whatever his uh, first name is. Joaquin. Uh, like I said, the, Joaquin. Yeah, Joaquin. Joaquin, okay. Joaquin, you, yeah. you know, saying that, you know, if, 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 you were, if you made a donation to President Trump, you know, you should be doxxed. You should be publicly shamed. How dare you? And, and he doesn't really back down on that at all. It's like, oh, yeah, they deserve it. Uh, because you simply made a donation to a political candidate. You may not agree with 100% of what he says, but you think he's the best man for the job, so I'm going to make a donation to his campaign. But that makes you as equally racist as you claim Trump is. It's crazy. It it really is, and I don't know why we've gone so far to the extreme on that. I I don't know what's pushed that over. I mean, really, has unemployment went down? Yes. Has the economy went up? Yes. Is everybody seeming to do better in this economy? Yes. Then what's the issue here? And that's what I don't understand. I really, I mean, we're not at war. We're not, there's a lot of things that we're doing really, really good. So do we want to go back to record high unemployment and the economy not doing well and back to war and all? I mean, do we really want to go back there? I don't. I don't. I want a better nation for every child out there, every person, and I don't get why why it's not like that. But you know, um, I'm going to continue to support the president. I support his agenda and I support the things that he does. And I don't mind writing the check. And if they want to stand outside in the road, stand outside in the road. But I doubt you'll find a lot of supporters in our county that that'll do that. You know. Well, the, the way, I think the way I see it, and... go ahead, Carter. I was just going to say, the way I see it, we we are somewhat in a war. I think it's um, it's about ideology. You know, there there's those on the left who have have their idea of how they want to um, run this country. They they think that the um, founding fathers were all racist, and um, this country was never really the great country that we on this side of the aisle know you know know it's been in spite of you know its ups and downs and its um, internal um, problems many of them we have overcome so and and then you have those on our side who want to preserve what the founding fathers left for us so i think there is a war and i feel that they feel threatened i i, I think they feel cornered and when you corner somebody, you know they're going to come at you with everything they they have. So it's, yeah. a, it's about survival. Well, I think you're right. There's no doubt we're seeing that happening. But my question is, what audience do they really have? You know, um, I talk to young people all the time, and I think the best thing to give a, a liberal is a job, and watch what happens to their patients. <laughs> you know. Uh, watch all these taxes come out. <laughs> I know that sounds funny, but it's You're true. so cruel. Well, I mean, come on. I mean, I, 
you know, I give I give to poor people when I feel led to do that. It should be my decision. It shouldn't be the government's decision to take my money and give it to somebody who's not well deserving of that or even trying to get a job. I mean, come on, school's starting here next Monday, you know, and people are out getting school clothes. I didn't have that luxury. My mother passed away when I was young. My dad uh, had, had alcoholism, and school clothes wasn't an option unless I got out and worked for it. So, you know, it's and that didn't hurt me. Let me assure you, you know, it did not hurt me to go out and work for a living. And I've worked my whole entire life, I feel like. But, you know, I want to, I feel led, I help people. If I don't feel led, I don't help people. And uh, most of the time I do help people. So, but it should be an individual decision, not a tax and spend type situation. And I'm glad President Trump is standing up to a lot of this stuff and and possibly, I think he's saying the things that we've all been wanting to say. We we're just kind of scared to say it, you know. But I think he's starting that conversation, and it's not sitting well with the other side. Well, yeah, it's, it's funny because we started the show off talking about white privilege. And I said, well, I wasn't born with a silver spoon. It was more like a takeout plastic <laughs> spoon. And you're talking about, you know, charity. Uh, I was one of four kids in our family. And, of course, you know, money didn't go very far in a family of six. And the clothes you got for the school year were the hand-me-downs from your cousins, which is probably why And today, if I'm cleaning out my closet, I'm donating whatever I have to my church, which runs its own charity. You know, there is a way that you can give from your heart with generosity. But if you mandate that I give someone something I do not feel they deserve, that's not charity. That's theft. Uh, I, we've got a caller, a friend of the show. Let me let me bring her on, and let's get Sweet Sue in here. Sweet Sue, it is so nice to see that you're with us today. Um, your question or uh, comment for our two guests. Yes, I have uh, two questions, actually. But the first one is, I was on Twitter when Trump had his last rally. One of the things I think is going to be happening more and more is they are going to plant more and more protesters trying to get more and more reaction. And I think they're going to try to uh, shut down the rallies as being violent. And this is really apparent, I mean, on Twitter. And I got into a thing with the people who actually did it. And they were out there saying, you know, we were planted to do this. And then you saw the mainstream media talking about the violent Trump people when that wasn't what happened. So do you think this will be a tactic in the future? And also I'd like uh, whoever wants to give an opinion. I'm sure you've seen the socialist uh, convention and what went on there and these millennials. Do you have anything to say about what you saw? Well, I don't mind talking about the millennials. Um, honestly, what I see in our county is in our last election, um, the 3,000 others, millennials, if you will, those were – I don't think they were all millennials, but a lot of them were. Did not, they voted on the Republican side. And I have to think that some of that rhetoric is just not working the way that the media wants us to believe it's working. I don't believe that that we're that decisive in this country. I believe there's a handful, but 
my Lord, I, I can't buy into the fact in our last election in Putnam County, 3,000 others, other voters other than Republicans and Democrats voted with the Republicans, and most of those people are young people. And I can I can show you the numbers on that. And to answer your first question, yeah, I think that as I think the left is going to pull out any trick that they can do to make this a a very contentious election. They're going to make it where uh, we almost feel bad to get out there and support the person we want to support on the conservative side. But if we don't, we're going to lose our nation. And I really feel like I think people are waking up. I know. I know my kids have been looking at this. I don't try to sway their opinion one way or the other, but they're coming to me going, tell me more about this and tell me about that. They're seeing it, and they're being thrown under the bus when they had nothing to do with it. They're just trying to make a living and raise a family in today's world. So what did they do wrong? They did nothing wrong. And I think that the left is going to pull out all the stops to make people feel unworthy, if you will. Um, yes. As as far as well, for, I want to go like the whole thing about the campaign trail. Yes, I I honestly think that's going to be some kind of violence that's going to happen on the campaign trail. But in all sincerity, I hope it happens while President Trump is speaking, because if that were to happen, those Antifa protesters or anyone that would try to create violence are in for a very very bad day. Let's not forget, it's not just local security that's going to be there. It's also federal security that's going to be there. And I know I have some friends that are in the Secret Service. Oh, yeah, they don't play. They, you get too close to the president, yeah, you're going to have a bad case of lead poisoning. Now, as far as the millennials are concerned, I did watch – the the socialist convention and what I thought about it was that it was a massive waste of my time to watch it but as far as millennials themselves <laughs> are concerned let's not forget many millennials nowadays are joining the army the navy the air force the marine corps the coast guard many millennials today are firefighters many millennials today are paramedics many millennials nowadays are the ones that are actually working hard and you know making it in this world and the ones that are the biggest ones on the there's this minority. They're the ones that are hogging up the entire the entire spectrum of the of the media, whether it's um, in, re, in writing, on the internet, on television, or on radio. They are hogging up all the news because they're the ones that are screaming the loudest. But there are many. I have a daughter. She is a millennial, and let me tell you something. For somebody who's five feet two inches tall, oh. You don't want to make her angry. You don't. (laughs) And she's a nurse. And she's a nurse in the United States Army. I do not know where she got her right. But she's a nurse in the United States Army. She just got married. And she's a millennial. So we got to ease up on the word millennial once in a while. I like snowflake. I agree. I agree. (laughs) Wonderful answers. Well, thanks, Sue. Um, but it's funny because one of the articles, again, I'm holding it to the camera, that I had pulled out was about the Democratic Socialist Convention in my neighbor state of Georgia. And, oh, my goodness, this this would make Monty Python sketch look like pure sanity. 
it would make Monty Python actually make sense from what I was reading in this thing. I mean, uh, people were so triggered that instead of clapping their hands, they were using these jazz hands because they didn't want to trigger anyone simply by clapping hands. And heaven forbid you use a male or female pronoun. No, 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 no. You can't use a gender pronoun. Come on. What's what, What's what's next? You can't call a cat a fee lion. What are you gonna call it? A what lion? What what, what do you call it? Yeah, you know, this is crazy. I, I, Commissioner, you, like you said, you've got young kids. How do you how do you deal with this with them? I'm sorry to say that again. How do you deal with t- talking to your kids about this? Something like this, this Democratic Socialist Convention that they had, where no genders, you don't clap your hand, you have to use these jazz hands because clapping the hands is triggering. <laughs> yeah, it, it, snowflakes is is too kind a word for these people. It's gotten crazy. I mean, I think, and I think people see. Uh, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see the the hypocrisy and the the silliness of the whole thing. I mean, my 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 kids are have kids of their own now, and they can see right through this. This is this is despite decisive, and that's all it is. It's meant to it's meant to bring everybody in when truly everyone doesn't want to come into that fold. I don't want to buy into that that type of rhetoric, if you will. Um, you know, I, like I said earlier, the best thing to do is get people a job. And that's what we've done in this country is put people to work. And uh, I know in our own state, in our own county, there's more jobs here than there are people on uh, on unemployment. So get them a job, make them feel better about themselves, see what really comes out of their check, and and let them let them make their own decision. But this stuff is getting getting so silly that I think it's going to backfire on all of them. And then you got impeachment. Impeachment for what? Impeachment for what? Yeah, we had collusion. We did. And it was Hillary Clinton that did that. It wasn't <laughs> President Trump. And that, you know, most of the mainstream media would just say, yeah, we had it, and it was the former party, not our party. And that's the bottom line here. So, you know, it's, I think people are seeing right through it, and I think the election in 2020 are going to show those numbers that people are going to see right through all this stuff. You know, I'll be well, honest and you and you both know I'm a very honest, blunt, straightforward shooter. If you want to impeach the president <laughs> for having bad hair, okay, well, you know what? I got nothing to say. You win. Yes, he does have bad hair. But thank God it's not unconstitutional to have bad hair. So back off, Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, well, see, yes, you'd appreciate this. And, and Larry, you'd appreciate this because remember there was that whole kerfuffle with that school out in, uh, I believe it was uh, San Francisco, uh, of the mural that had Washington, George Washington on the side of it, uh, saying it was racist because it, the mural shows our history of under George Washington, he owned slaves, blah, blah, blah. And I never saw, I never saw the actual painting. So I said, all right, fine. And this is another example of the left trying to pull down the symbols of our past history, including symbols of the Confederacy, of Christianity. Uh, but then, thank goodness, there is sanity out there. Thank you, Daniel Greenfield. Uh, his Sultan Nish, people know him as that, and he's been on the show. 
that it turns out that the mural that the left was tearing down uh, was from a Russian communist painter, Victor Mikhail. Uh, I'm probably going to mispronounce the last name, and probably you're better off on this one, so yes, than I am. The last name is Arnatov. Uh, and he did a communist depiction uh, which showed George Washington in one of the most awfulest lights, and it depicts capitalism as horrendous. Uh, he was so bad that during the WPA underneath FDR, uh, they had a bunch of guys like this doing these paintings all across the United States to employ the unemployed painter. They were so bad that they had to flee back to the Soviet Union in the 60s and 70s. And this is the mural that the left wants to take down. It's their own damn mural by their own damn painter. Can it get any better than this? Yes, I'll let you go first, and then Larry. See, that's the hypocrisy that you will confront with many of those that are on, let's say, severely left-leaning. They're so left-leaning that they're lying on the left side that it's – here's this beautiful painting. Here's a painting of the history of our country. It's disgusting. It's awful. This whole wall needs to be ripped down brick by brick. But it was painted by a Russian communist. It is a work of art. It is beautiful. We need to turn this into an altar for for communism and socialism. And, oh, God, I want to hit you in the head with a baseball bat right about now because it's, it's, that's the hypocrisy. It is. That's crazy. Isn't it? I Larry. Yes, ma'am. I mean, it's just it's silly. And when you try to present the facts, they don't want to hear about that. You know, but but the bottom line is we are a very successful country. And capitalism works for everyone here. And I've never been privileged. Trust me. I, You know, and you were talking about when you were growing up. But I remember my mother holding my sister and I by the hand in the, in the food line, in the cheese line. Remember the government cheese, the blocks of cheese? Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. And I was so embarrassed. I was so embarrassed. That I told my mother, and I'm eight years old, I said, we're not going to stand in that line anymore. And my neighbor was an old man, Mr. Bruce. I'll never forget him. He had an old lawnmower. And I went over the next day and I said, Mr. Bruce, I'll cut your yard for free for a whole year if you'll sell me your lawnmower. And he did. And I started working at eight and nine years old, cutting grass, so we wouldn't stand in the government cheese line anymore you know and i tell you what i learned quickly the more grass i cut the more i got paid if i kept my costs down i got to keep extra money life was good you know so it's just down to well, we're down to our last nine minutes, and you know uh, I'm going to make one other observation about the insanity of the left. They got this new movie coming out called um, The Hunt, and uh, I kind of laughed because I was listening to the description of it, and it's a bunch of leftists that go out and hunt those that are conservatives. Uh, so the bad guys are the leftists that are trying to kill off the conservatives. So the conservatives end up being the hero of the movie. But the left is putting this out as if this is something really good to promote leftism. <laughs> and they said, release the movie. Release the hounds. We'll show them how 
stupid they really are and how in the end we can survive and rebuild. I mean, it's crazy, guys. It is absolutely crazy out there. And Larry, you know, thank you for the great work you do because I know you're out there working within your community, helping with different charities and different events to make your community and those that need help to get the help they they really need. Uh, you're giving them the hand up, not the hand out. And this is what we need to do. And thank you for that. Well, I don't think anybody. I mean, I've never felt good with a hand out, but I've always felt good with a hand up, and that always made me want to pay back. I'm looking for something here. I'm going to find it in just a second. Um, I want to share something with you. I was a judge at a barbecue place. Um, in the county close to us last Saturday, and they had these monuments. And I want to read something. This this uh, Edwin Fraser in, in Baker County says, I've worked for the highest hopes and aspirations for the people of Baker County. So long as I draw breath, they will get the very best for me that God gives me to, to, to do with. And I thought to myself, what if we all, what if every American could say, as long as I draw breath, they will get the very best from me that God gives me to do with? What a world we would live in if we could all just do that every day, give our best to make someone's life better, not to tear it down, not to divide us, but to make our lives better. Man, that would be a tremendous gift to humanity right there. Absolutely. Well, C.S., I want to thank you also for joining us and sticking around with us with Larry Harvey. Uh, probably the two of you should get together uh, and have a conversation. Um, uh, C.S. has his website, which is the theinsiderreports.com. Uh, uh, so, Larry, hook up with the C.S., and I'm sure he'll give you some interesting insights. Um, thank you, both of you, for uh, joining us. We've had so much fun today. Well, yeah, it was a there's a mile down the road. I should be able to hook up with him, but time doesn't seem to permit that. <laughs> oh, I, the, Commissioner, he's talking about the other CS. Oh, I I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll be glad to. Yeah, some of you won't. I'll be glad. <laughs> you got to take it today. Okay. One day. okay, okay, this is what we'll do. We'll call CS Bennett. We'll call him CS Prime, like Optimus Prime. Business. All right. You're too cool. You're too cool, CS. You're cooler than I am, honestly. But other than that, I'll be just CS. Okay. I'll be CS. You can be CS Prime. But, Annie, thank you for having me on the show. It is always a pleasure and an honor to be on your program with the both of you. And, uh, Commissioner, it was a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you for awesome. sharing your airtime with me. You also, sir. Thank oh, you. And I love you. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll have oh, you both absolutely. back on again. Absolutely. You're a good tag team. Good tag team. Look forward All to right. it. Have a great Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. All right. We've got uh, Curtis. We've got our show already lined up for next Friday. Um, we've got Dr. Bruce Hartman. He will be coming back. He's got a brand-new book out that's just been released, followed by, directly behind Dr. Bruce Hartman, by Dr. Alveda King. She'll be joining us. And our surprise guest for next Friday, you hear about her all the time in the news. She's always <laughs> going after uh, 
some 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 of these people like the uh, Muslim uh, activists out there as well as leftists. Laura Loomer, she is running for uh, Congress out of Florida's District 21, which is currently a Democratic seat. Uh, she's one of several Republicans that have thrown their hats into the uh, ring. So it's going to be a very, very exciting show next Friday. And uh, we'll just keep on struggling along. I'm not exactly sure. I will know a little bit more either, if not tonight, maybe on Monday, whether or not I will be able to do a live show on the 23rd. I am scheduled for another surgery on the 22nd. However, I got read the riot act by my cardiologist last night. And when you get the doctor's office calling you at 630 at night, you know they're pissed off at you. <laughs> so I'm trying to get the surgeon to work with my uh, because of the device that they planted in my heart. No, no, because the device that they planted, it's been in there uh, not quite two months, and he wants me to go a full six months before we do any more medical procedures. Uh, they ran the test on it uh, just the other day, which is why I was a little down and out the last two days, because uh, it does really tire me out. But everything's sitting fine. Everything's looking good. Uh, there's some other problems that the cardiologist is going to have to work with me on, and i got to work with him. Uh, so we'll see <laughs> whether or not my two doctors get mm. together and, and they don't kill me <laughs> ahead of time. Wow. <laughs> so I'll know more about the 23rd as we get uh, into next week. So, Curtis, I've had a blast, and uh, thank you for <laughs> being the other CS. <laughs> and, Sue, thank you for the call into the show. And Sue tirelessly has been Sue. pitching the show out there the last two weeks. So um, that's all I got for today, guys. Thank you, everyone in the chat room uh, that's been joining in. Also, some great stuff you guys have been posting. I always forget to mention you guys, but you know I love you and I appreciate your help. So I'm going to be closing out the show, Curtis, uh, with our closing mm-hmm. song, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. So I say until then, good night and God bless.